did you have for brekkie today? Uh, <laughs> I woke up with my lemon and wet, lemon, hot lemon water <laughs> and a half a litre of water and then went to the gym. And then I'll do that. Sh- I'll just do a shake every morning. So just someone hit the, hit the bloodstream really quick. Okay. What which is just you? banana, peanut butter, spinach, mint, cinnamon, protein powder. Nice. Oats, almond milk, cinnamon. Did I say cinnamon? Cinnamon. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, just buzz up all that. Hey there, how you doing? My name is Jordan Michaelides and I co-founded Neural with my partner, Lauren. We built the Uncommon podcast to interview unique individuals and investigate interesting topics, therefore allowing our community to build the quote-unquote uncommon sense crucial to increasing their intelligence. And our investigations and interviews are largely inspired by people like Joe Rogan, Tim Ferriss, Charlie Munger, who's Warren Buffett's business partner, and particularly in Charlie Munger, who always really emphasized that worldly wisdom is incredibly important, not just for entrepreneurs and investors, but for your own growth as an individual. And he always used certain quotes, and the one that I love the most is um, Abraham Maslow's quote, which is, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And I think by saying that, what he's trying to emphasize is that if only, if you only have a certain skill set or knowledge base, then all you will see is that cognitive bias related to that skill set or knowledge base. And therefore, you need to broaden that. So we are really trying to investigate and uncover new guests and new topics for our community. Uh, If you want to learn more, you can head to neural.com slash podcast. I hope you enjoy. This podcast has been an experiment and we need your feedback as a subscriber. So leave us a review, make your way to learn more about the competition and prizes that we have going. Uh, that is at neural.com slash podcast, N-E-U-R-A-L-L-E. Some of the prizes include an Apple Watch 2 for all you high performers out there, a Kindle Paperwhite for you book nerds, an Amazon gift card for everyone else. We, you can also sign up to our, I guess, weekly brain food, which is the Monday morsels at neural.com slash sign up. Make sure you check it out. In this episode, we recorded with Chef Petros Delitis, uh, who's a man for all seasons in the hospitality world. He's worked his way from being an apprentice chef at the RCV Club, the development chef of two celebrity chefs, Shane Dahlia and George Columbaris, globe trotted across uh, the Mediterranean, working as a man of many hats and has now gone out on his own to make necessary lifestyle changes. Uh, he really exemplifies what it means to have that growth mindset and see your life as a system and always be learning um, with a particular focus on hospitality. He's had amazing experiences sitting behind the scenes of unique chefs along the way. He's a very funny guy. Um, so you you hear a lot of laughing in this episode. 
Some of the topics we included were uh, just discussing the immigrant work work ethic, being the company bicycle, as he puts it, uh, at the Press Club Group, becoming a development chef, finding work in Turkey and Greece and, and working as a private chef and some of the stories there, the one percenters of fine dining, building menus through travel experiences and how that would have reflected in his work with Shane Deli at this, uh, doing the spice journey with with SBS, going out on his own uh, with Adonis Catering, and and how that impacted his ability to lose uh, the weight that he did, which is it's quite a significant amount. Uh, this is a really fun episode. Like I said, it's it's long. There's a lot of laughs. Hope you enjoy it. Thanks for listening. All right, we are live. Petros, thank you for joining. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> um, with, with everyone, I think, uh, with every guest, we like to just start off with, you know, a little short bio. I went and, you know, as you can see on our notes here, I went and yep. trolled shit from the internet. Perhaps you can give us a bit about who you are, you know, where you've come from and what do you do. Right. Um Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'll, I'll, he looks I'm, over at the cliff. I'm, turning, I'm very concerned. <laughs> um, I thought Mike Monroe was going to walk in for a second. Um, the So I grew up in Thomastown, born and raised, Melbourne born and raised to European migrant parents. Um, turning 30 this year, grew up in the northern suburbs of Thomastown, went to primary school, high school there. Fast forward to adolescence, I was playing a lot of sport, uh, cricket and soccer mainly. Started cooking. So my brothers had a pizza shop. Now I'm youngest of four. So my two older brothers were about 10 years into their careers at this stage. And my dad had a couple had a couple uh, businesses in a little place called Diamond Creek. <laughs> okay. Which if you're not familiar with Diamond Creek is, it's past Greensboro, Eltham towards Hurstbridge Way. Okay. So it's like an hour out of Melbourne. Right. The city. Um, he said to them as a joke, he was having some trouble with some tenants. He said to them as a joke, why don't you go, it would be easy if you boys just ran this pizza, pizza business for me. And they said, yeah, yeah, why not? Fuck it. <laughs> so they did. Of no hospitality training, no business training, not knowing how to make a pizza, let alone, they know how to eat pizza, but they've never made one in their lives. They haven't done stock on hand control, nothing. They, they know literally nothing. And they, they're Greek, right? So they haven't grown up really yeah. up eating pizza. Yeah. Well, look, they've been growing up eating, whether yeah. it's pizza or not is a different thing. But in their heads, they're like, yeah, okay, we'll take on the challenge. Now, it took them a while, um, what, five years they were in there. And in that five years, we learned a whole lot of lessons. Um, they did about themselves, about each other, um, about business in general and hospitality in general. Long story short, they got out of it and went back to their normal jobs after that. So my oldest brother, Jim, is a he's an aircraft mechanic. He works for Boeing to this day still. Really? Um, been building F- F-18s and F-16s and MD Explorers all of his life. Wow. Uh, my other brother, Nick, is a fitter and turner. I'll, uh, he went back into fitter and turning. They, so those two were doing similar work to my dad, being a mechanic and engineer. Yeah. And my uncles on my dad's side. So it's... um. They went back to doing that. Ironically, Nick has gone back into pizza shops in the last few years and he's got some relative success out of that and he's been doing all right. Um, but he bounces in between both um, currently. Um, the biggest thing was my oldest brother, Jim, who's been my, pretty much a f- massive father figure in my life. Um, he said to me, and this is you know, 12, 13-year-old Petros, I want you to come and work at this pizza shop. Okay. Um, I want you to see how hard it is working 
as a trade. Okay. And I, and I want this to deter you from getting a trade. And I want you to do well in school and be an academic and, you know, get a behind the desk job and go to uni and everything. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, right, man, whatever. I was, you know, 12, 13 <laughs> years old, just trying to perfect my googly, playing cricket on the weekends. <laughs> so um, that backfired on him as we could, you know, fast forward now, 20 years <laughs> almost. And um, it started, it, my cooking career pretty much started there. So it's now it's massively different to what I my cooking career is now. But it was it was the addicted adrenaline addiction and get, being a part of a team and the camaraderie of a team, you know, working to each, with each other and working towards each other, um, back and forth with customers because it was a bit like an open shop at the time. Yeah. Um, so it was pretty cool for a you know, 13, 14 year old kid to be, I had like minimal responsibility, but you know, I was, I was enjoying it. I actually look forward to being there every weekend. Um, and ultimately I just wanted to help out, you know, my, my pretty much my whole family was vested in it. Um, with the exception of my sister, I think, she, but she's a psychiatric nurse. So it's, it's fair enough why she wasn't in there. Um, <laughs> so she's, she's dealt with enough crazy. People. Yeah. Yeah. And as well as having, you know, three brothers, <laughs> probably, probably didn't help her. Um, it, Actually, probably did help her, to be honest. <laughs> but um, I was, you know, I came around the time when a part of high school, we needed to pick a place to do work experience. I um, ended up doing work experience at a place called RSCV Club. Um, two weeks there, I was hooked. Okay. So I was, you know, year 10, did work experience. I think it was around 2000 or 2003. Were, was you, like, were you doing like hospitality classes at high no, school? Oh, uh, like look, I was doing home ec, but nothing. Ah, okay. There was no, you know, serious things going on. Yeah. Um, then did two weeks at, at, at RSAV club that were keen straight away. Like, Hey, if you're, you know, at the time it was massive to finish, to get out of high school early and, and start a, start a trade. And thankfully I didn't. And you imagine next, that conversation to Greek parents saying, Hey, I want to leave school early and cup of backhander for not finishing high school. <laughs> but for me, I didn't dislike high school. I wasn't a degenerate or anything. I didn't hate high school. I wasn't a bad kid or anything. I just, I knew that from that first two weeks of doing um, work experience. I was like, sweet, I can see myself doing this the rest of my life. Yeah, and I knew this was what I wanted to do. Um, so I stuck but, it out in high school. I enjoyed it. What? Why was it? Why was it that you knew it was what you wanted? I don't know. It was just a, a strong feeling. Okay. It was. It was that a realization of I can see myself doing this prep. It's not hard. It's okay. It's hard, but it's not easy. But it's a good challenge. So okay. I'll, I'm happy. Like I'm intrigued by it. Right. I, I look back now and I and I laugh to myself, thinking, what shitty food was I doing back then at RSV club <laughs> because it wasn't as much as good as a place or great as as RSV club is and it is so yeah. I've gone back there many a times ultimately I started my apprenticeship there but I was it's not it's a far cry from what I was doing at press club within two years of that or at Maha or at St. Catharines or, or whatever so yeah. it was or even you know working at a two Michelin star in Bordeaux so it was massive massive difference yeah but again it was a good starting point and it propelled me from there Okay. Finished high school. I had a few months in between finishing high school and starting my apprenticeship. They couldn't take me straight away. So RSV Club was like, stay here anyway. We'll find some work for you. We're a large-scale organization. We'll find something. So they threw me into purchasing. And that was pretty cool because I started meeting. I started realizing where the hustle and flow part of the industry is, yeah. where you got purchasing managers who who got to buy, and then they got guys who do inventory control. And, and that side of the business where you're not really looking at as an apprentice chef, you just need to be focusing on cooking and cleanliness and listening to your chef and keep your mouth shut and okay. head down. Whereas that was giving me an insight into what's how ordering systems were happening. And again, I didn't need that, that detail at the time, but it was good that it was in the back of my head. 
Yeah. And it was just little details that I needed. I find myself in my life that I find out about things that I don't really need to know, but I keep them in my back pocket for later. Yeah. And somehow, some way, that knowledge comes in handy at some point. Hindsight's a brilliant thing though, huh? Yeah, exactly. Like, it, it put me ahead in many ways yeah. of other apprentices. So, I was like, it's it was handy knowledge to have. Yeah. Started my apprenticeship. Um and I did about 18 months at Press Club. Uh, sorry, 18 months at RSCV Club. Yeah. In that time, uh, I became the kid the kid who just wanted to work. I was 18, 19, 17, 18, 19 years old and working hard. Mm. And and I took any extra shift and got bounced around from um, kitchen to kitchen. In You know, being working in a hotel, you get bounced around quite frequently. Yeah. Um, in that time, I met a guy by the name of George Callum Burris. <laughs> <laughs> um, how, did, how did you meet him? All right, so I actually met George whilst I was in year 12. Yeah. My sister... Um, my sister actually, is, I was going to say, you can tip. My sister is glued to anything that's Greek. So she said to me, um, hey, for your present for something, I don't remember why, but she said, here, I want you to go to this um, weekend Central Ingredient Paran. Okay. And you do cooking demos. And one of them was with this guy, George Calabaris, who I, at the time I was following. Because at the time, George was killing it. Yeah, he was doing reserve and he was... Ready, steady, cook? Uh, I don't think I had started at that stage. I think it was just starting ready, steady, cook at that stage. Okay. But they were... He was killing it with reserve. He was killing it with Bacuse Dior. He was becoming noticed. He he was at Phoenix at the time, at that around that time as well. So he was getting noticed and he was... And I was reading Epicure every weekend, every Tuesday at that stage, like I still do. So it was... I was sort of like excited to meet him. And there was another chef there... Um, the next day, who I was meeting, uh, Theodore Kiriakou, who's actually, I think he's still in London. Okay. Who's at Restaurant out of London. Um, but I haven't heard from him for, for from years. So I'm, I don't, I've, to be honest, I haven't even really pursued him since then. Okay. Um, but George was, meeting George that weekend was awesome because I was like, oh, this is, he, you know, he, the guy sort of became my idol at that stage, mm. or my chef idol anyway. Um, fast forward a year, started my apprenticeship. Finished year 12, started my apprenticeship, and I'm working at RSCV Club. We're getting ready for a cooking competition called the Darrell Cox Memorial. For 20 years prior to that, that was the biggest apprentice chef competition in the state. Right. Every chef who you've seen now on TV has somehow gone through that competition. Huh. So Shannon Bennett, Shane D'Elia, Scotty Pickett, Adrian Richardson, all these names, they've all gone through, of that um, generation, I suppose, have all gone through Darrell Cox. Okay. George coached us for that. For about three weeks or something, we did all right, um, and then George stuck around for about three or four months after that because this was when he was in between reserve and press club. Towards the end of his time, he said to me, "Hey, opening up a restaurant," and I'm thinking to myself, "Why are you talking to me about it?" <laughs> <laughs> and he said to me, "It would be nice if a good Greek boy like you would come on down and you'd be my apprentice." And in my, in, I'm trying to contain excitement here because ultimately my chef father just asked me to go work for him. <laughs> so, you know, like, I don't know, cue the Beatles, the girls screaming at the Beatles in the 60s. This is what I, in my head what was happening. Yeah. Um, I naturally said yes. The yeah. guys at RSCV Club, Mark Normoyle, who was my first, well, Mark Normoyle and Massimo were my first exec chefs, who Mark, who I still speak to to this day, they gave me the blessing, so to speak, and said, yeah, go. Like, we, we, we can't do much more for you here, so yeah. you're better off going. Yeah. Um, now, with that, just to give people context, it's it's normal, yeah, for a, a chef to move after their first year um, or maybe second year? Yes and no. Like, 
uh, it was seemed it seemed pretty common at the time that apprentices that I was going to trade school with were moving every six to twelve months. Okay. Um, but at a place like RECV Club, which is a hotel and it has multiple outlets, from members dining, you know, fine dining to cafe to banquets and functions to all sorts of stuff, you know, you surely you could squeeze a couple of years out of them, yeah. depending on how well you're progressing, obviously. Yeah. Um, traditionally, you'd spend. Um, you so I got into press club got my ass handed to me repeatedly for about three years solid. So, but it was it was an awesome learning experience and it's things I would never give back to anyone. But ultimately, it's what I what I still refer to these days as accelerated learning. So you have like, you're doing 18 hours a day. Yeah. At least 14, 15 hours a day is the norm. Yeah. Um, high octane, high pressure. Uh, you just, you're copying it from all angles. Then throw in your apprentice. Then throw in that you have a bit of an... Ad, uh, uh, an attitude that you want more and you're an attacker and you're hungry. Ultimately, you're hungry. And that kitchen at that time in well, October 2006, we opened. At that kitchen at that time, it was very, we're all hungry. George was hungry. Justin and Trav were hungry. They were our sous chefs. Uh, yeah. Ian was hungry. He just came out from UK. He had just got UK pastry for the year. And then he had these three little dickhead apprentices, <laughs> all Greek boys. <laughs> we were all different stage of our apprentices and apprenticeships and we were just like, yeah. Yeah, we want to. Yeah, yeah. we, we want to have shaved heads and kick ass and be rock stars and whatever. And at the time, George was spinning shit out of his ass about being rock stars and whatever. And he always, always pulled out these Bon Jovi analogies that I used to cringe at. But but you know that drives people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's you know, throw in a nineteen-year-old Petros <laughs> who just wanted the world <laughs> and starry-eyed kid who just wanted to work and comes from you know um, a very uh, European mindset of. You know, parents came here on a boat 40 years ago mm. and the only way they were going to succeed or live, let alone succeed, was if they worked Yeah, and worked hard. My old man still has a, has a 1 million hours a good year trophy, a uh, newsletter thing that he still looks at fondly, which, you know, I've, I, haven't, I haven't sat there counting hours, how many I've done over the years, but sh- yes, <laughs> um, look, my old man was wrapped when he got the gold watch and the, the 1 million hours thing in the company newsletter. Yeah. And he got recognized and good on him because, you know, he worked his ass off. Yeah. But it was just like, I'd, I'd get calls from my dad on my days off and he'd be like, yeah, what are you doing? I'm like, day off. Why? Because I've just done six days straight or 12 days straight or something stupid, a month straight. Yeah. It's like, but shouldn't you be working? I'm like, all right, dad, can I have one day off? Like, <laughs> <laughs> I can't feel my feet. I'm zombied staring at the ceiling and there's a TV on that I don't know what's on. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, yeah, but get back, get back to work. Yeah. So it was just like very work, work driven. And to be honest, my brothers are like that as well. So it's just like, you know, just get back into it. I, I mean, my family is much the same there. Again, uh, well, particularly on my dad's side, it's Cypriot immigrants. Yeah. What, like what, how do you think that, how do they do that? Or how, I mean, I was speaking to Angie about this on the previous podcast yeah. with her. But I just don't know, like, what is it that you think um, allows them to just get up, you know, and do 15-hour days all the time and just never, ever have a break, ever. Like, I find myself... Survival? <laughs> yeah. It's, I think they get stuck, They because they're stuck in that survival mode of... It, surely it gets ingrained like habit, in them. Yeah. Yeah, habit just becomes, becomes habit. becomes habit for, like, the first yeah. six years, 10 years of, like, yeah. struggling, and then it just becomes yeah. normal. Because yeah. to watch my dad go into retirement 10 years ago, 15 years ago, was interesting to see... Because he was, for the first time, he didn't have to, he didn't even know where to be at 4 a.m. He wasn't driving to Nana Wadding. He didn't have to go to Thomas and Nana Wadding at 4 o'clock every day and then come home at 5 o'clock or 6 o'clock 
like his his day was now in disrepute completely. It was massively out of whack. Yeah. Now he's going to look after the garden. Now he's going to look after the dog. He's retired. He shouldn't be working. He doesn't have to be working. He's got to break the, the family accountant's balls. He's got to, you know, do all sorts of stuff. Mm. So it was interesting. He didn't know how to handle it. And, you know, what are you expecting from a 60-plus-year-old man on how to handle retirement? <laughs> he's yeah. just been doing one thing all of his life. So, you know, throw in some health scares and stuff as well. You know, my dad had a triple bypass and still went back to work within a couple of weeks. So it's... And now throwing is a type 2 diabetic, you know, he's, there was, every employer now, you listen to Richard Branson, or you're going to hear, you're going to hear discussions of work-life balance. Yeah. I can't remember, not that I've looked it up, but I'll challenge anyone to look it up on how many CEOs 30 years ago were talking about work-life balance. Yeah. But not many still do as well. Yeah. And yeah. To, yeah, exactly. It's only just getting, getting into the, you know, the yeah. zeitgeist as it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's the upper echelon of businessmen and CEO that openly talks about it. Yeah. You know, so it's and even then it's hard for them because really they've got they've employed en- enough people to be able to to balance workloads, mm. and then you can read all sorts of case studies and tell you how people balance their work days of you know, whether they have an hour break or two hour break or start later or finish later or whatever and how it affects the normal traditional nine to five. So, yeah, yeah. So you're grinding at the press club. You're grinding it's- at the press club. Ass handed to me daily, getting pushed to do all sorts of things. Eat, sleep, and breathe the industry, the restaurant, become vested in it. And that's personally, that's how I work, to be honest. And that's probably the biggest thing I learned from my from my dad and my brothers. You jump into something, you jump in head first. Yeah. You know, it's surround yourself around the right people and jump in head first. And don't think about anything else. Just commit to it. Mm-hmm. And allow time to to devote yourself to the craft and devote yourself to the to the business. Irrelevant if if you're paying for it or if you're, you know, getting a monetary uh, check out of it okay i was getting a weekly wage but i was treating the place like it was my own and really i was a third-year apprentice now as much as that's laughable that a third-year apprentice is treating a multi-million dollar restaurant as his own um it accelerated my stature in the business as it was growing so press club is one of the, well, the main establishment group is one of the few businesses in the country or restaurant businesses anyway that has accelerated growth in what seven years, eight yeah. years? He he like to for those that don't know, I think George was in such a unique scenario. Absolutely. You know, like he'd come out with the press club, which was really it would have been bizarre for that time because yep. it's it was modern Greek, right? Yeah. Um and then you add on top of that fire gasoline on top of that fire, you've got ready steady cook, yep, master chef a couple of years later. Yeah, yeah. And then it's just like this. But again, he structured himself around the right people. Yeah. Um, George Sikiotis is one of the other backers, yeah. uh, uh, man, uh, CEOs. And he's, that guy's a monster within himself. You know, he's, he's an absolute gun. I used to watch, yeah. what I learned from working under Sikiotis for six months surpassed what I learned from Calabaris in seven years yeah. as, as the head chef of a little press in my last six months at Press Club. So it was, it was again massive learning curves, and then you throw in the other two backers, the the, the silent partners, the guys who own Apex Steel, Joe and, Joe and Tony, and okay, they're they're only coming in to eat, but they were watching you grow. And every Christmas party, they were sitting, they were, they were humble blokes, yeah, great families, and they were coming in and sitting with the kitchen hands at the Christmas party. Mm. So it was, you know, it's humbling from the from the top to the bottom. You could see that they were they were all hungry together. And they're all hungry for success together. Mm. And the funny thing is, I vividly remember Joe Collegia saying how amateur 
the hospitality industry is, which coming from the corporate world, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There's, you know, we don't have a union. Yeah. <laughs> so and this is something I was discussing with a mate of mine the other day. Like, what would happen if there was a hospitality union that actually was productive and Yeah. Well, there's, no, there's no true, like, you know, I do, in, uh, I guess, investing on the side, but there's no real true right now in Australia dominant hospitality or tourism company. Like uh, there are private ones and they focus on niche areas, yep. but there's no true dominant one. And yep. I mean, that's why, you know, you see now with like Made, Made yep. Establishment, which owns Press Club, et cetera, Garzi, Jimmy Grant's now. Hellenics and um, they're, they're very unique. Yep. Um, I mean, like from a corporate perspective, the, the way that they structured it was amazing. And yep. anyone can read this because it's, it's – It's in they, all the BRWs now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> They've like, chosen one um, their, British Entrepreneur of the Year or something. Their model is sort of similar to um, the McDonald's model, not in terms of food but in terms of the structure. Mm. They would buy or get the freehold. Freehold of the business. So that they could dominate – they could basically do what they like mm. with the venue. Yep. And that is, you know... Throw in a couple of renovations every couple of years yeah. that aren't cheap. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it, when you're going up and things yeah, yeah. are projecting up, it's very, very valuable to to own that. Yeah. Um, I know that my dad, he... Look, he's in printing, but he did a similar thing. He made sure that he would always own the real estate, mm. um, which in bad times means that you can reduce your um, your lease, essentially. Yeah. Um, so it's very, very, it's a very powerful thing to have, which puts you in a scenario that allows you to do what you want, essentially. And you can see what they've done now with um, yeah, with Gazi was a you, amazing turnaround. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but they're the last. Well, they've spent the last year selling these bu- these buildings as well. They have, yeah. You know, the Hellenic Q was being sold back when it was St Catharines, and that was at least three or four years ago. Yeah, the Press Club building. I rem- vividly I remember around two thousand and six was when the botanical got sold and Chris Lucas owned that at the time. Yeah. And I remember that and I didn't understand it till years and years later, but and I didn't I've only realized this up until recently that that was this was their major plan to have the freehold and then sell it. Exactly. 10 years down you, the you track make or eight an, years down the you track. You make it an enviable uh, establishment. Yeah, it's already a nationally listed heritage listed building. So yeah. it's not like it's, it has to be that much more enviable. Yeah. Like throw in, as I said, three renovations and now it's a 40 seat fine diner and a 90 seat Gazi pump house. Yeah. But it's, you know, I remember Starry Eyed, the Sikiotis and Calambara saying there's, he, he bought it for three mil, Chris Lucas, and he sold it for 10 mil, the wow. botanical. Wow. You know, that vision that was, you know, that was, they were look, they were, Talking about it in admiration, like you know, they were proud of him, yeah. of Chris Lucas at the time, and they were like, "Okay, it's this is unreal." But years later, that I realized when they when I saw the news came out last year that they were selling Press Club, I thought the penny dropped. That's what they were going for, right? The whole time, yeah. And it's it, funny how like um, the media plays it that, yeah, um, yeah. you know, oh, they're in financial trouble. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like I, every time I read those, I just laugh my ass off. Like, why are they? One, what what does it matter to them? Yeah, to the media. And two, like, well, it's drama because yeah, they can just, sell. Why they are they can creating sell drama shit. for? Like, yeah. but obviously, it's creating publicity for him. And obviously, there's no such thing as negative publicity, as we've seen with Donald Trump this last year. Yeah. <laughs> but it's just like there's, it's it baffled me that what, they're going on about how come they're not and why they must be in financial trouble and strain. And I'm like, well, no, because they keep opening something every six months to a year yeah, and rebranding every six months to a year. A, a renovation, restaurant renovation is not cheap by any means. Yeah. Well, depending on the venue. Exactly. And yeah. a venue of a national, national heritage listed um, building 
to get renovated three times in eight years or seven years is mental. Yeah. By any means. Like, truly mental. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, like, we had to, at the time, they had to renovate at the, after the first three years because the kitchen was not big enough and it wasn't structured well enough to go to the bar, to take food over to the bar. Right. So that's where they that's when they built Little Press and for its own little kitchen. Yeah. And then, you know, to then transform it in switching venues for uh, Press Club to find diner to move to where the bar was and Ghazi to become to stay the big pump house that it is that just rebranded ultimately is, you know, what their their, their strategy was. Hmm. And good on them. They've kicked ass ever since. Yeah. You know, it'd be interesting to see if they're going to do another Renault two years' time <laughs> <laughs> now that they don't own the joint anymore. Yeah. So – I'm taking this from my time at Press. When yep. I first came to Press, it seems that we're sort of meeting at the crosshairs now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you um, – this is when it was – I'm guessing it, it had had a renovation in the main room. Yep. Um, so, you had like that chef's table. Yep. And my first time meeting you, you were you were essentially running that, that section, right? I was in pastry at the time. Yeah. And I remember – I think it was you that told me this. At the time, I just wanted to learn pastry. Because I'd never, I hadn't really done a lot of pastry up until that stage, and I've always tried to build myself to be pretty versatile in my in my skill set, to not just be the fish chef, to not just be the meat chef, to not just be the larder chef. I'd wanted to be able to do everything, and in my eyes, if I was going to take on a sous chef or a head chef role later, I needed to know all aspects of the kitchen and all aspects of the business. Hmm. So, I said to at the time, Joe Grabrak was the was the head chef, and I said, Joe, I just want to do pastry. Like a day a week, I'm happy to do a day. I'm happy to come to my day off, Joe, and do it. And he was like, "No, nah, no." Nah. And like later that afternoon, he literally said to me, "Hey, so and so is leaving. You want to jump in next week?" <laughs> so I was like, "Okay, whatever." Yeah. And I had new minimal pastry knowledge. Like I'd done maybe three months with Ian Birch, like three years prior, and maybe made a couple of galactopuricos at Hellenic Republic. This is but, Ian Birch from Birch and Purchase. Yeah, back then. Yeah. Oh, he's not with them anymore. But well, yeah, 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 of that name. Um, but it was, <laughs> it was hilarious that within a I did a pastry for about three or four months. By that stage, at the, I think, mid-2010, I was going to Maha. That was my first time I was going to Maha. Okay. And I went and worked there. And I went. I got to Maha at that stage. And as much as Maha was a part of the press club group, there were still very different structures of how the businesses were run. Hmm. And definitely, absolutely different mindset, whether it was Middle Eastern cooking or not. But Shane and George have a massive... Different, massively different ways in how they run things. A lot of similarities, but massively different. And I remember walking into the Maha kitchen and I was, you know, I was familiarizing myself and everything and share menus here and there. And after a couple of weeks, the head chef there said to me, um, hey, I've, I need a hand in pastry. Can you jump in pastry? <laughs> I said to him, well, I've only done pastry for like six months of my life. Like, yeah, uh, yeah, I'm happy to help. But like, where where do you think that I'm a pastry chef here? <laughs> and he goes, yeah, man, I've seen you do pastry plenty of times. You'll be fine. Yeah. Which is, to be honest, very common in the industry to hear. Like, yeah, yeah, you'll be fine. Blag it, you'll figure it out on the day. <laughs> so it's, you know, it doesn't happen. It happens. Uh, first three years I was at Press Club was majority of the time I was, I was in the fish section. Okay. Majority of the time. I done by this stage Hellenic Republic had opened I helped them out a little bit um, I got asked George asked me to go to Greece and do Belvedere Club for a, a season yeah so Bel for those who don't know Bel Belvedere Club was like a collaboration with George yeah it was George it was sort of like how Gordon Ramsay works where he puts his name on a venue ah, okay. on the other side of the world or whatever yeah and it's a at this you know, Belvedere was is well, 
Boutique Hotel in Mykonos. Yeah. It's probably the Boutique Hotel in Mykonos. Yeah. Still is. It's very nice. It's very nice. <laughs> <laughs> very nice. <laughs> and um, so they've got, they actually got two res- restaurants in there in that, and the Belvedere Club. They've got a Nobu. Okay. Nobu Matsuhisa's, there's 16 restaurants of them in the world. And the Iwanitas brothers who own Belvedere Club have a couple of them. There's one in Athens and one in Mykonos. Okay. This was a pump house. They're doing 200 covers a night. Wow. It was nuts. Like, I've never seen that much tuna go through ever. Like, there's whole tuna rocking up every couple of days. Fuck me. Now that I've just traveled to Japan, I can sort of appreciate now, it a little bit more. <laughs> people who don't realize this, if, you, if you're carving up an entire tuna, you're talking like- um, 400 kilos. Yeah, but like in servings, let's say if we were to do it in um, servings of- uh, Sashimi size sashimi. is about 20 grams. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's huge. It's like a thousand plus yeah. pieces of sashimi. Yeah. It's crazy. Mental. Like, yeah. pl- take out um, skin, bloodline, bone, yeah, head, yeah, which Japanese technique is to use or utilize all these things, probably without the bloodline. Um, it's yeah, they they're hitting two or three tuna a week in the peak season, which is nuts, like, absolutely nuts. Wow. As well as everything, all the other seafood that they're doing. Yeah. Anyway, so Calabaris had like a five year contract there, um, and he and pretty much we were doing like a knockoff of Hellenic Republic and Press Club menus at the time there. Um, he had two head chefs there, mm-hmm. uh, one, na- one native um, and one one of the other girls was with us at press club. They were going back and forth each year. Okay. Um, I went over there. I had the time of my life. <laughs> it was a big party. <laughs> it was, you know, I felt it's probably the only time I actually did feel like a rock star because I was doing, we were working hard and then going out at like two, three in the morning, ending up at a nightclub and then a beach at, 7, 8 a.m. and then getting sleeping for a couple of hours and then going back to work. Yeah, wow. And being pretty intoxicated for the majority of it. Now, I barely drink. I don't drink much. Yeah. And I consider myself, you know, nowhere near an alcoholic. But that 88 days I was in Greece, I consumed that much alcohol that I'm pretty sure I haven't touched, gone anywhere near that level of alcohol in my system since then. Wow. And, you know, we're going out every night. It was culture. There was, there was like 40, 50 staff from uh, bus, bus boys to pool boys to front of house staff, back of house staff, yeah. reception staff. We're all going out pretty much every night. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't just the guys at Belvedere Club would hang out only with Belvedere. The Nobu guys would go, come out with us as well. And we're all pretty much living together in, in a big staff compound that was holding about 20, 30 people as well. So, mm-hmm. it was a couple of these staff compounds on the island. So, it was pretty cool. Um, as I said, at the time of my life, it was unreal. Met some family and I went back to Melbourne. Came back to Melbourne um, was when they were renovating Press Club for the first time. And then, yeah, I ended up at Maha probably about a year from that. I then, from that stage, became the company Bicycle. And did about a year and a half at Maha. Then I went to St. Catharines when it first opened, spent about a year and a half there. And then went back, ended up back at Press Club after all that. Yeah. So I went pretty much full circle. And you had, you know, chef to party, sous chef positions and head chef positions. But ultimately, I sat down with George and Shane just before St. Catharines opened. And I said to them, right, your company is getting pretty big. And I want to make my own position. And, you know, when you're hearing that from a 22, 23-year-old, <laughs> surely the two CEOs sitting across from me, they're raising some eyebrows. <laughs> but ultimately, I said to them, look, I know you guys like the back of my hand. And you guys both know that can vouch for me and say that I'm a hard enough worker to be able to say to propose to you what I'm about to propose to you. I never said to them, hey, I want to be your development chef. What that meant was, and I gave him my position description was, I want to work in between you two and your seven head chefs at the time who are all industry heavyweights at that stage. You had, you know, Joe Grabeck was there, 
Paul Dunlop was there. There was, you know, solid head chefs. Travis McCauley was still there. You know, all these guys who were prominent in the industry of 20 plus years. Mm. So, yeah, as I said, heavyweights. Um, I wanted to work in between all of them. I didn't want to be a sous chef because a sous chef is the bitch of the kitchen. You got to you got to be like you got to be good to the the people who are under you because you got to keep them in check and make sure they're all on plus and they go to the prep and everything and they're all keeping the food cost up to date. Then you got to be you got to work with the head chef and the owner. Sometimes they're the same joint role, but then you got to look after them and say, okay, I got to crack the whip and you got to yeah. be an asshole. It's, you, it's a sort shit of, job. You're sort of like the uncommissioned officer, like yeah. a sergeant in the army. Exactly. You, you, it's ultimately, shit. you're never in a good spot, yeah. and ultimately, everyone hates you. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, I don't want to be the sous chef, and I can't handle everyone hating me. My ego couldn't. Yeah. So like I said, let me be your development chef. Let me work. At the time, George and Shane had a lot of uh, TV work and cookbook work, and you know enough to I thought to substantiate a role. And they were like, yeah. And they trusted me with that job. Now, they didn't give me that job per se straight away. They Obviously, they made me work for it like yeah. they do with anything. But like <laughs> any responsible business owner will make their staff work for anything. But like I was spending days off. At, the, at this stage, I was, work, I was at St. Catharines and I was doing development work here and there. I started running the functions upstairs, looking after downstairs wherever I could. And ultimately... The development work was sort of happening until I sat down with George and he said, look, this development thing you're doing, it's nice and great. You've built enough of a foundation, but I'm going to renovate Press Club again. And I was like, okay, swear we've had this conversation two years ago. But, <laughs> but, um, and he said, I'm going to build a development kitchen. I was like, great. So I'll just come here now, right? And he's like, yeah, but I want you to work for it. And I'm like, yeah, of course. <laughs> Um, so I want you to run Little Press and Little Press is going to shut down in six months and I want you to run it and do whatever you want, but, you know, run it. Yeah. So and work with the guys at Press Club together because we're, obviously we're all big one team there, yeah. even though there's a wall separating us sort of. I was like, okay, whatever. And I went back to Press Club and I was enjoying it. You know, I had I was working with George, I was uh, Calabaris, so I was working with um, the head chefs of Press Club and the sous chefs of Press Club and, and it was great. It was the first time where I got my ass handed to me for over or over or under a food cost. And having that responsibility and staff wages and all that stuff, right. which was great. And I, that was my crash course of that. And, and is again, this where the purchasing thing came in? Yeah. Handy? Exactly. And that's where like my relationship with Sikiotis blossomed because I'd spent six months with him pretty intensely. And again, I learned more from Sikiotis in this stage of six months than what I did from Calabaris in seven years. Because Calabaris was never or notoriously hasn't been the numbers man. Sikiotis was. Right. So that's where I learned all the, the number crunching and getting on this part down pat. And, you know, I'd hear about it every Monday when the, when the budgets came through from every venue, every head chef was copying it. <laughs> no matter if your, if your food cost was great, something, something would be off, whether your wage cost or something, you'd right. be hearing about something on Monday. And come uh, midweek when the management meetings were happening, if you didn't cop a bollocking by Monday, you were probably going to cop on by Wednesday, Thursday. Right. So, <laughs> so at some stage, you were doing all right. But anyway, as I said, it was crash course and again, higher learning. You're... Delve into your position. You commit yourself to the craft. Commit yourself to the role and say, yeah, I'm here. I'm doing it. Um, six months happened. They came up to the time where they were going to renovate and Ghazi was pretty much ready to open and they were going to start knocking down Little Press to, to build a new press club. And I, and I sort of felt as if um, it wasn't going to happen. Development chef role wasn't going to happen. Right. Which contradicted my whole six months of being there. Now, okay, it wasn't a negative that I was there for six months. I'd outgrown my time at St. Catherine's prior as well. So I thought, okay, it's probably best that I did come at press. 
And again, higher learning in that six months, I, it wasn't a complete negative or a write-off. It was a massively positive period in my life, in my career. So I realized I wasn't going to get the development, shop, the development chef job and if I and I could probably squeeze two or three months away. I, was, I just wanted to get away. I wanted to get out of Melbourne. Right. At the same time, George and Shane were separating their businesses. Okay. They were dissolving their relationship. So for anyone who doesn't know, Shane had the same backers as George that George had to start Press Club. Right. Um, Shane broke away, made a clean break. He sold his shares from St. Catharines back to the company and bought Maha outright. Mm-hmm. Um, freehold and everything. Mm-hmm. And I... Now, I've had a, I've got a... At this stage, I'm in a really unique relationship with both of them because I've... Shane has known me since before I started working for George when mm-hmm. I was an apprentice. He's actually one of the people that told me to go work for George really? before I started working for George. Because right. I was at a crossroads. I was like, okay, this was back in 2006, obviously. I'm leave- I know I'm going to leave RSCV Club. Who I'm going to work for? Short, George or Shane? Right. Now, Shane at the time was in Yarra Valley and I couldn't get from Flemington to Yarra Valley every day. <laughs> so I was like... And he said to me, I then went and did a stage with him for three or four days working for free. And I sat down with him after three or four days and he said, look... You don't have to come here. Don't feel as if you have to come work for me. Okay. Um, but George, I know George for long enough. So yeah, go work for George. You're Greek. He's Greek. You'll be fine. <laughs> Little did I know that Shane was already setting in the building blocks for him to get out of Yarra Valley. And pretty much a year to the date of that, I'm on the fish section at Press Club. George is working the pass and Shane is working meat section. Wow. Getting ready for Maha to open in three months time. Wow. So... It was a dream come true for me. The two knuckleheads that I wanted to work for were within an arm's reach. Mm. And, you know, three bald heads, three stocky bald wog blokes in, <laughs> with bald heads in the chef jackets. We all look like brothers. So, you know, it was great. Um, but it was, it was exactly what I wanted. As I said, I was in the fast forward seven years, eight years, and George and Shane were separating their businesses. I needed to get away from Melbourne, I felt. I just wanted to get out. I was over what was going on. I just wanted to get out. Yeah. So I took the first job that came to me and that was in Turkey. Okay. It was a little boutique hotel, 30 seat restaurant and I just got out. What, what was that called? Um, it was in Alachati, which is the on um, about 90 minutes from Izmir, right on the Aegean coast. It was called Sudan Palace. Okay. Yeah, I had to jog my memory for that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, worked there for about six weeks, didn't work out. I ended up back in Mykonos. Okay. Um, back at Belvedere. Back at Belvedere, exactly. Yeah. Um, I was actually trying to get. I was trying to work at Funky Gourmet. So Funky Gourmet. If you don't follow the Greek dining scene, which not that there's a lot to follow, but there's one shining light of the Greek dining scene right now, the fine dining scene, and that is a place called Funky Gourmet. There are two Michelin star, and um, these the, the two head chefs there are absolutely sensational. Like I ate there, I sat down and ate there, and it was what by still. To this day, top three dining experiences I've had in my life. Wow. I loved it. It was 16 courses, beverage match, everything, every detail was just looked after. Everything, everything. I ate there and I, was, and I went in on the, the next week to go do a stage to, to do work, um, job trial. What I didn't know was after a day of working there, uh, well, they were going to close for August, for the summer. Now, I needed a job for the next seven or eight weeks to keep me busy and, you know, it wasn't going to be worth to me for me to hang around for four weeks <laughs> and not getting paid. Yeah. So uh, I messaged the Iwanitas brothers again and said, hey, I'm in town. I can be in Mykonos within six hours. If you guys have got work for me, I'm happy to come over. If not, you know, I'll go back to Australia. Yeah. 
mm-hmm. sure I'll find work there. Um, and I was got an email pretty quickly and a phone call very quickly <laughs> saying, hey, if you're in town, you need to come here. Yeah. They didn't have any idea what to use me for and how to work with me. But because they'd known me, they were like, yeah, 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 yeah just come over. Yeah. And surely at this stage, I've already spoken to Callum Barris and Callum Barris was like, yeah, yeah, he's fine. Yeah, take him. Give him work. <laughs> he needs it. <laughs> he needs money. So, yeah, just take him. Um, so I was, I went there and literally I got there on one of their busiest weekends of the year. The Nobu was celebrating 10 years or something. So it was a mental weekend. And they were like, we don't have... I got there on a Friday and they're like, we don't take jobs in mid-July. I was like, yeah, I know. Which I found it interesting why you guys asked me to come here. But anyway, I'm here. And they're like, yeah, let's leave this to Monday because we've got a solid few days coming up. I was like, all right, what do I want to do between now and then? I said, here, have an apartment and just do what you want. <laughs> just leave us alone. We're busy till Monday. And okay. I'm like, look, I'm ready to cook now. I've got my Birkenstocks here, my knives here. I'm ready to suit up and go. And they're like, no, 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 no. Just enjoy the beach for three days. Come back to us on Monday. Okay. Sat down with them on Monday afternoon and they still didn't know what to do with me. But anyway, they said to me, I sat down with the owners, sat down with both Iwanita's brothers and they said to me, we have got no job for you, but we have an idea of what we want to do for you, what you want to do for us. Yeah. Um, we want you to do consultancy. And I was like, okay. I'd done consultancy jobs up at this stage for George and Shane on and off because they'd bounced me to places here and there for a week or so. By this stage, between 2009 and 2013, the Oanitas brothers had bought a little bit more real estate. And to me, my back of my head, I'm thinking, what financial crisis? These guys are buying left, right, and center. Yeah. They bought another hotel on the other end of the, ho- on the other end of the island. And they'd bought a couple other little restaurants. They ultimately just said to me, spend a couple of weeks in each of these re- little restaurants and give us a report at the end of the two weeks. Okay. How they run efficiently, effectively, whatever. That would have been awesome. And I was like, okay, easy. <laughs> I'd done all the reports. I'd done whatever I had to do, assessments. And they were like, you've got a couple of weeks left, right? And I was like, yeah. Uh, we've got some villas. We've got private villas that we handball out to our private, to our upper echelon clients. Okay. I'm like, okay. We need a private chef. So have you ever done private chef work before? And in my head, I'm like, yeah, man, no worries. No dramas. <laughs> How hard could it be to cook for five people at a time or 10 people at a time? Anyway, so I get handballed to this villa on the outskirt of Mykonos. Which is unreal. <laughs> this villa was going for like 10,000 euros a night to rent. Like, it was mental. And it was a beautiful house. Like, to give you an understanding of how much of a piss take this place was. It was on the outskirt. where You're, you're standing in the kitchen. I'm standing in the kitchen. I'm out looking in the backyard. Well, backyard. <laughs> there's, no, there's no Don Burke music here. There's, <laughs> I'm out looking at the yard. And it's, there's a mes- massive pool and like a patio thing, which looks unreal. Like... Greece is unreal as it is geographically, let alone if it's, you know, architecturally beautiful as well. Beyond this pool, like 10 meters, there's the ocean. So I'm thinking to myself, how much of a piss take is it right now that these people have a pool when there's an ocean right there? (laughs) (laughs) And anyway, so I was there for five days. I looked after a, um, a, uh, a private equity banker from London. He, he was Jewish French. Wife, two kids. He had a fleet of nannies and staff with him. And I had to look after him each day. Okay. Cook breakfast for them all and then do lunch or dinner. Now, these guys were going out every night as well. So, I just had to cook for the kids a couple of times. And that was it. Like, I had my staff quarters downstairs, full Wi-Fi, ready to go. I was getting, and I was, and 
they, the family took a bit of a liking to me. The dad was like, he was trying to get me to go over and work with him in London, wow. to go work for him in London. And the nanny was like, yeah, you should come. Well, they go on holidays like every six weeks. As a, travel as a, with them and everything. As a private chef. Yeah, as a private chef. And, and I'd known of these roles as private chef roles, and they were pretty lucrative. But the thing was, you're a circus freak because you're every six to 12 weeks, you're in somewhere else. Yeah. And you're like, you've got no stability and, and whatever. And, and by this stage as well, it's coming to the end of my time in Europe. And I didn't have really have a European visa or anything for me to keep working. Um, George and Shane start messaging me saying, hey, what are you doing when you come back? <laughs> and I'm like... And I'm Is this myself, like the ta- how the tango yeah, starts? Yeah, how the it? tango starts. And I'm thinking to myself, do I want to go work for these guys? What am I going to do? Who am I going to go work for? What am I going to do for work back in Melbourne? Um, long story short, Shane offered me the position of development chef for him. So by this stage, the, the, the dust had settled of their... Um, Marriage breakup, they refer to it as. <laughs> and Shane got me in the divorce. I was like the little dog. <laughs> but, you know, that's how they put it. And anyway, so Shane got me and Shane had heaps of work. He had like a two-year plan of work for me for the next two years. From SBS Spice, um, Shane Delia's Spice Journey, it was, I already worked on Series 1. So it was easy, easy fix for him to say, yeah, you're going to come and do C- Series 2 with me. Yeah. And because you have knowledge now of Turkey, even better. So, just to give people context, when you're doing these sorts of things around TV, mm. what is involved? Are you planning? Are you just iterating out re- uh, menus and recipes? So, how and work with Shane and, in Shane and I? So, pretty much the relationship I had with Shane, and this is very similar to the relationship I had with George, was they'd sit down like now, and they'd have papers and papers, and in Shane's case, a little moleskin book because Shane does all these little sketches that. Fucking, you have no idea what they are. But but he sits there and he just explains them to you and gives you the brief. He'd give me a brief. And for in the case of, of Shane Delia Spice he'd give me a brief for 10 episodes, three dishes an episode. Okay. So 30 dishes would knock out in like, it's like a four or five hour discussion here and full brain fry going on by the end of it. But anyway, it was then my job to run away and organize it all. I'd have to speak to the producers and the executive producers and find out where the venue is. I'd have to coerce, uh, speak with the, the food stylist and discuss the plating arrangements and all that stuff because all the um, what style of plate is very significant towards what dish it is. Right. Now, if you haven't, if you don't know who Shane Delir is, you'll find out very quickly by looking at his Instagram page that he's a sneaker nut and he has a fetish for plates. Yeah. Nice plates. If you ever sat down at Maha before, you'll know that there's some nice, nice crockery and cutlery going on. And any real, really good one hat, two hat, three hat, Melbourne uh, restaurant, Melbourne or in country, really has got a really strong uh, crockery presence. Yeah, because it's it, a part of the experience. Exactly, it definitely adds to that experience. And I'm sure if Angie hasn't spoken about it, she probably will at some stage because she's probably had to pay for these things now yeah. that she's a restaurant owner. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, like it's they're quite pivotal to the roles. If you look at guys like Granite Cats in um, Chicago, he's got a crockery guy who just makes things for him, and he's a three Michelin star, yeah. and he's been at the top of the game for a long time now. Thomas Keller is another one. Um, Fern Adria was getting things made for him at, at the height of El Bulli when El Bulli was the number one restaurant in the world in, throughout the, the, the noughties and 90s. So to give you an understanding, it's pretty predominant. And then you, you look at – but these brands now are sort of becoming household brands because the Robert Gordons and all these companies are now venturing their way into Meyer and Kmart because they've got like, like any major brand in the world, they've got a, a budget range where people can say, hey, I've got Robert Gordon Cutlery in my house or yeah. crockery in my house. Just like Mercedes now is bringing out um, the $90,000 Mercedes that you can buy just so people can say, I own a Mercedes, but I don't have to spend 300 grand to get one. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So it's, again, 
everyone's doing the the mega high peak thing, the upper echelon of the market, but they're offering something, you know, cheaper. Neil Perry has got new Rockpool, but he's also offering a burger joint. Shane Delia has got Maha, but he's also offering Biggie Smalls. Callum Barris is offering Press Club and Ghazi, but he's also offering Jimmy Grants. Yeah. So it's to give you that understanding. Yeah. Again, crockery is pretty important and it's just a cost at the end of the day, but ultimately it's a part of the experience for the higher echelon you get. Yeah. Because then it comes out, the higher echelon of restaurants, you'll find all these little one percenters make a difference. From Marco Pierre White saying when, back in the day in the 90s when he had his three-star three, three star restaurants, he'd give everyone fresh bills when they give you back your change. He'd have his restaurant manager in between service, run to the bank, come back. So when you got your change back from your dining experience, you get a fresh, crisp bill. Wow. And how good is it when you get a fresh bill in your wallet? You know, you pick it up like, fuck yeah. That's a brand new 20 or a brand new 100 or whatever. You're like, this is awesome. So that to that level of of experience for a diner, you look at Fat um, Fat Duck and Heston Blumenthal is, is making your experience relevant from the second you book to be at his restaurant. You get an email and it says, this is your experience. And, you, and it starts and you get reciprocal emails, you know, coming up to the event. Not every day, but like every, you know, you're not getting a newsletter saying, hey, we're getting, you know, seafood this week. You're getting like, hey, your second course is going to be this. So think about the last time you were in this part of the world. If wow. you haven't gone to this part of the world, then this is what it's like. Because they build menus around experiences. Yeah. And that's where, and as much as this sort of dining can turn into pretentiousness and a whole lot of wank, it does, it's where restaurants were built you know, 20 years ago, they were built around, you follow the chef because of their experiences that they're having. And their experiences are, having, uh, are happening because of their travel or because where they've worked or where, where they plan to go and what they want to do. There's, I remember reading through all this, the difference between Shane and George when it comes to um, keeping themselves relevant in menus. Whether we've hit this question too early or not is, no, no. I'm going to hit it now. Go but what, what I'm saying, so Shane travels, has traveled pretty predominantly the last few years. Spice Journey 1 was Iran, Lebanon, and Malta. Spice Journey 2 was Turkey. Spice Journey 3 was Morocco and Spain. Now, he's probably gone to these places in the past, through honeymoons or whatever, or trips in the past. But he's yearly, he's building menus now, 30 dishes that I've developed for him and handballed to him, and then bang. Now, as much as everyone wants to come in and say, oh, I want to have that dish that we had on Spice Journey 2, I really have to go in and eat there this week because the SBS menu is running towards the episode of that week. Um, it's reciprocal towards what his cooking style is. Had you seen Shane five years ago, you were like, yeah, he's very Maltese, Lebanese based and a little bit of um, classical French influenced. Now you look at his, his, his cooking and it's very, you can see there's Spanish nuances okay. because the, the Moorish spice route went through Andalusia, the south of Spain, through Morocco. So he's always had a, like a strong spice influence, obviously, being a Middle Eastern chef or Middle Eastern restaurant. But he's, um, you see the spice influence through Andalusia and the Moroccan and the, the flavors of that go through Spain. Spanish food isn't necessarily connected to Middle East or now, nowadays, and it's not an easy connection now. Yeah. But obviously, if you look back through history, it is through the Phoenicians or whatever. So Shane now has got license to go grab a bottle of Pedro Jimenez or whatever. And to start using all these Spanish ingredients, and then you all of a sudden you're sitting in Maha for the first time in years or whatever, or your next dining experience, and you're getting all these Spanish flavors now, mm. which is foreign to these people. And now, okay, whether it get, I don't know what reactions it was getting because I'd left it by that stage, but it was just like 
you know, what's that's that's where Shane's cooking has gone. He's elevated himself and kept himself relevant and renewed throughout his his well his skill set, I suppose, just purely from traveling once a year for two months of the year, and it's pretty predominant along across the chef scene anyway. El Bully was shut for six months of the year, doing development for the only six months of the year that they were opened. They only had something like thirty thousand seats available each year. It's no. only a forty seat dining room. Yeah, so. They Fernandria would would travel in that six months and build menus across his experiences. Mm-hmm. As I said, it's pretty standard across the the that scene. Um, George hasn't done as much traveling. He hasn't definitely hasn't gone to Spain and Morocco. Okay, I'm pretty sure he does his yearly Greece trip. Um, but there's only so much Greece can offer you. I'm not saying Greece can't offer you anything in what he hasn't done already. Keep in mind, Press Club is now ten years old, mm. so he's there's only so much you can do. With what's happening over there, as I said, I mentioned Funky Gourmet earlier. They're the, the best Greek restaurant in the world. They're a two Michelin star, and that's nothing to go by. Not that you need Michelin stars to tell you how good of a Greek restaurant you are, or any restaurant that you are. But what their food that they're doing is sensational. It's truly something out of this world. You, if you saw them during OMG Week, um, which is the event that they run, that Calambaras runs, it was. You look at everyone else's food, and there's a lot of other Greek chefs that came over. Those guys smoked everyone else. Yeah. Absolutely. And you look at them in the world dining seat. You, li- you look at the Funky Gourmet guys when they go to Madrid Fusion or, you know, the other, the, you know, we've got Melbourne Food and Wine Festival here, but the equivalent, you know, over the seas is like Madrid Fusion or um, all the events that they got going on through London. These are massive events. Mm. And they always invite other country chefs. And Funky Gourmet goes to these things and kills everyone again because they're really good chefs. And they don't compromise quality. And they find what's best and works for them. And they ultimately are promoting the Greek spirit, the, the, the Hellenic spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, so how, how do you think then, um, like let's say if we talk about, you were speaking about Shane before, what, what do you think is George's competitive advantage in his style of cooking? Or what is his unique aspect? Is it that, like for me, it would sort of seem that he just took um, – the experiences he had through his life, through his family, yep. and then translated it in a different way. Early years, I felt that was the, probably the first five, six years, I felt that was the way. Um, now he's a lot more traveled and he's met a lot more people through MasterChef. Mm-hmm. Um, Heston's and Sat Baines's and all these t- type of guys who, you know, he's experiencing through their restaurants and dining scenes now. Um, I think he's he, he's got more access now than anyone he's on primetime tv six nights a week for three or four months of the year which as good as a little show on sbs is 10 episodes of the year which i'm super proud of shane and the production that with essential media did but he's on now postcards twice a week for 30 weeks of the year is this george or shane shane i'm talking about now so it's like he's gone from a 10 episode a week 10 episodes a year to 30 episodes on primetime. On primetime, which yeah. is what you need. You need primetime. The distribution is everything. Yeah. But uh, distribution of SBS to Channel 9 is massive, and distribution of Channel 10 is even bigger. Because then you look at MasterChef now, MasterChef Australia, and they're distributing it to India, to all over the world. It's in something like 100 countries. Wow. And it's killing it. Yeah. To the extent now where even if ratings are bad here, which it was a couple of years ago, that's, they've kicked off in ratings the last couple of years, but there was a like a sort of a lull period with MasterChef. It was still relevant, but it wasn't. But even then, those years, they were selling it to other countries and making a killing in South Africa and India and all these other countries. Because it was, again, 
the the drama is what gets people. You know, it's a good show. Yeah. But how relevant it is to the industry is that's where I, that's where I get my back up because it's like it's not relevant at all. It's nowhere near what actually happens. Yeah. I've stopped watching it because I can't watch it anymore. It, like, <laughs> there's very very few chef res- chef or restaurant shows that I watch and say, you know what, that's accurate. Yeah. Like I watch Gordon Ramsay, um, Hell's Kitchen, and that's accurate because. If you're in that environment of doing 15 to 16 hours a day and you've got a camera in front of you and you've got a couple of beers and a smoke, then yeah, you're going to piss and moan about everyone you've worked with. (laughs) (laughs) And especially if they've thrown you under the bus or they've gone down like a sack of shit during service and you've got to pick up the pieces (laughs) and they're not willing to to stand up and say, yeah, yeah, my fuck up, my bad. Yeah. And especially when you've got someone like Gordon Ramsay at the end of the line saying, hey, what the fuck? (laughs) Literally. So it's, as I said, Hell's uh, Hell's Kitchen is actually by far one of the most accurate. Of all these movies that they're making, the chef film with um, that, uh, what's his name, John Favreau. Yes, that's by far the most accurate chef film ever created. I think. Yeah. Um, and off lesser budget than what everyone else's is as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All the other chef films that were happening. So you know, it's it was it's interesting to see how what people's interpre- interpretations are and what the media will allow to come out about yeah. the industry because the reality is. And it's the harsh reality is that you're doing bone crunching hours in a high pressure situation and both sides of the past feel it. Then throw in the dining scene now has changed with people are more relevant and they have more of a voice. Yeah. And social media. Social media is a massive part of the dining scene now. There's stats now massively. You know, you got two hour sittings for all these restaurants. Come in at six, out by eight, out by eight, out by 10. And there's another sitting after that. The amount of time people are spending on their phones documenting that experience now, it's great that they're putting it on social media and bless them. They're going out for their one night a week or whatever or multiple nights of the week and they're putting it on social media. Whether they shit can a place or they love a place or they give it a good rating or, the, or whatever, it slows down the dining experience to the extent now where you have to make sure you've got those Schmick Robert Gordon plates or handcrafted plates because they're going to take a photo of it. Right. Then there was a thing about a year ago that all these restaurateurs and chefs were getting their back up and like, hey, I've got dim lighting in my dining room because it's really nice for everyone. And you guys are taking unwell lit. Well, the photos aren't well lit enough, and my photo and my food looks shit. Yeah. So <laughs> then, and then you're posting it and saying, "Hi, I'm at this in this restaurant, and it doesn't look great." And people are looking at it at face value, not even tasting it, because that's how people judge things these days. They look mm. at it for face value. You're swiping left and swiping right. You're looking at face value these days. You're not saying you're not looking at the content and saying, "Okay, ah, oh, that's that chicken's really good for me. That that nutrient is good for that." And they Shane's doing this for that. In- ingredient from this part of the world that he had experience in or whatever yeah you can't see that or you're not going to dissect that in the when you're swiping through your news feed so it's it's commoditized yeah way. exactly it's you know how do, how do you deal with that now <laughs> yeah how do you why do you why do all these restaurants now have to put a budget aside for a social media manager no. or you know that part has to be fit into the into the you know now as a business owner that i am now i'm looking at all these things and i'm looking at okay for me, for a long time, I was just crunching numbers that my food cost was right, more wage cost added up. Now I've got to look at, okay, I need a social media manager. Yeah. I need a marketing manager and advertising, et cetera, et cetera. And these are all things that I need to fit into my product's cost. Yeah. So perhaps we'll go to that next. You, so you obviously worked with Shane for a couple of years, was it? About yeah, two years? Yeah, I did development for two or three years for him and then um, I finished up and for the last year or so, or year and a half, I've been. I've. I wanted to go out on my own. Yeah. I wanted a clean break. Now I. I feel that so. 
Tell us about your business, and I feel like this this was sort of a change in who you are as a person as well. Absolutely. The point that I want to talk talk about is is health later on. But yeah, tell us a little bit about what Adonis is. So Adonis Catering is a um, it's a pre made meal company. In short, okay. Um, I've spent all these years working for everyone else. I wanted a clean break, and I wanted to work for, for myself and do something that I've got my own vision for. Um, as much as I'm doing pre-made meals and I'm working out of a production kitchen, it's not to say I don't want my own restaurant, my own cafe and stuff. That's just, that's happening later. My base, my foundation is starting from a little catering company that does pre-made meals with an ethos and ethics and morals towards helping the little guy, helping out all these little local farmers that are getting fleeced by big business and big um, um, supermarket companies. Yeah. Um, buying local and supporting local and buying organic wherever we can. So it's, uh, I send out a menu every week, okay. every Thursday. Um, I target gyms as my target audience. Okay. And I step into gyms and I say, right, I'm going to put a fridge in, in the corner there and I'm going to put some of my promotional marketing material up and I want to tap into your membership database. Yeah. In turn, I'll give you X amount of profit margin depending on how big the account is and I'll tap and I'll email all your members each week. Okay. Now, I'm steering away from all the big business, big gyms like the Fitness First franchises and all that stuff and Virgin Actives because I don't want them. I don't feel as if their brands are you know, collaborative towards me and my brand. I'd rather stick with the smaller brands and we can build our businesses together. Mm-hmm. Um, so I sit down with these companies and I offer them and I tap into their membership database and I use them ultimately as a stockist. So even if you don't go to that gym but you live near them, you can pick up your meals from there. Okay. So... Orders happen by Saturday afternoon. Menu goes out Thursday. Orders come in by Saturday afternoon. If you need something specific, like if you're an athlete or a figure athlete or something, or, and I've got a few athletes at the moment who play footy or whatever, um, competitors who are doing who are getting ready now for Arnold Classic and all the other bodybuilding competitions later in the year, they contact me and say, okay, I need X grammage of this six times a day. Here's my meal plan here. Take it, cost it, send it back to me with a price on it because I can't spend all this time. I'm time poor. Um, I don't have time to go and do my own meal plan, my own meal prep because it's like six hours of my Sunday, including time to go shop and buy it all. I'm like, cool, easy. I'll just fit it with everyone else. <laughs> so Mondays I do all my prep. Tuesdays I prep and Tuesday, Wednesdays I deliver depending on which um, zone you're in. Mm-hmm. The rest of the week I'm running around and I write pretty much a new menu every couple of weeks. Okay. It's just how it works at the moment. And in that couple of weeks, I'm talking to my suppliers. And I've got about six farmers in my pocket right now who I deal with who do different things. I've got the Faranda family in Werribee who do beautiful broccoli and beautiful leaves, uh, lettuces and stuff like that. Okay. I've got, and they're generational farmers. They've been doing farming for 30, 40, 50 years here in Australia. Yeah. And I've had the same farm for that time. Then, you, then I've got a farmer, um, Sammy from Seymour, who is a first-time farmer, really. He's not a generational farmer at all. So if I said to him, hey, Sammy, grow me some tricky radishes, man. I need some radishes in my menu coming up. And he's like, yeah, what radishes do you want? Radishes, there's like 12 different varieties of radishes. Okay. And I said, I don't know, grow three of them, different varieties together, see what happens. <laughs> and he's like, yeah. But if I said that to the Fernanda family, they would look at me like an alien. Like, no, we're not doing radishes. Like, if we'll grow radishes, we're ready to grow radishes. We're not going to grow three different varieties together. Like, that's, that's, that's stupid. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, no worries. I'll keep buying your broccoli. And I go back to Sam. Like, hey, you know, what are we doing in Seymour? And he, so he, he does that stuff there. Then I've got meat guys, chicken guys, seafood guys, and I work around 
with what's available. So purely if tomatoes aren't ready yet, because obviously we're in summer now in Melbourne, and theory, there should be tomatoes everywhere. Yeah. There is, but there isn't. It sort of sounds like you've, you've got these um, partners there to help you sort of yeah. continue experimenting as you've done exactly. in the past. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's, like, that's how I feed my creative edge, I suppose. Right. Whereas now um, I'm a manufacturer. I'm, a, I'm not even in a restaurant anymore. Mm. Um, I'm helping out some friends from time to time but, and feeling that the adrenaline rush that all chefs are addicted to. Um, but ultimately, if something's not in season or it doesn't taste at its best, I'm not using it. Yeah. When tomatoes are great, I'm going to flog tomatoes. Tomatoes are going to be everywhere. Yeah. And I've got multiple ranges now where I offer a, a salad range. My biggest thing is all the, all the market research I did about a year ago, I was trying to figure out why all these companies were one, frozen prepaid meals, two, contain nutritional benefit after microwaving something for six minutes and taste like rubber. Um, and mostly, how come they don't allow their customer base to choose what they want? Yes. Because they've got all these preset meals of chicken, brown rice, broccoli. What if you hate brown rice? Or yeah. You don't need brown rice in your diet or you hate broccoli or whatever. I, that's why I don't use it. Yeah. And it shits me because I tried using those companies as well whilst I was doing my lifestyle change, yeah. which we're going to get to. Um, so it's sort of scratching your own itch in a way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But then I was doing it through my way and my style of cooking. because, And I think that's where I have a competitive edge against everyone else because none of them are boasting that they've got a, a good chef. Let, a chef, let alone, you know, one who's done Michelin star trained and, and, and you know, one running some pretty solid sh- hatted restaurants here in Melbourne and for a prolonged amount of time. 12 years of cooking, I've spent majority of my 12 years of cooking for hatted restaurants. Yeah. One or more. So it's, let's say I've never done time in cafes and little restaurants or unhatted restaurants. Like I enjoyed working at Hellenic Republic. I loved it. But I couldn't do it for a prolonged amount of time. Yeah. So this is where I'm doing Adonis now and it's feeding my edge and I'm changing my... I've got a nutritionist who I handle all my stuff to and she writes him a nutrition panel for me. And she like... At the time when I first started speaking to her, she was like, yeah, I'll take on some extra work. Nutrition panels, they're not hard. <laughs> and I'm handballing her like 30 things a week and she's losing her mind on how much she's got to do. Yeah. Okay, she's billing me for it. It's not like she's working for free. But it's, just, it's like she's losing her mind because she's like, okay... This is more work than what I anticipated. <laughs> and I'm like, look, I told you I change the meat every two weeks. All right. Like, you know, it's not like I didn't say it. And you I got like, you know, a salad range, a carbohydrates range, a protein range. And I got like three or four things on each one. And then throw in a grocery range or a pantry range. Um, and I've sort of kicked off with a cook like an Adonis range, which okay. is like a cheap meal. Tell, tell me this. Is there a particular reason why you haven't focused on building an online system first? Um, I felt as if going, keeping a grassroots for the start. Just test it. Yeah. Yeah. Te- that's, that's perfect. Yeah. Exactly. You test out the market. As, exactly. Yeah. As because I'm a different price point than every other company, pre-made meal company as well. Mm. And the biggest thing was, is that I'm not frozen and I can't stockpile things in freezers. Yeah. And I can't give the gym a freezer and says, here, I'm just, you just tell me whenever you need it loaded up again. This is the minimum order. Yeah. I'm I'm prepping fresh for that week and all my stuff has got at least a seven-day shelf life on it. It's all slow-cooked meats. It's all sh- freshly shaved salads, um, hand-making cavatelli with, you know, beautiful pasta with um, spelt flour and all that stuff. So it's like we even did sweet potato gnocchi all December and that's gluten-free and that's – anyone who's made gnocchi before trying to make it gluten-free and have a self- seven-day shelf life, well, no, it's a mega pain in the ass. I saw, I saw <laughs> but that it's delicious. Your, I saw that on your Instagram and yeah. – So – what what was tell us about the change 
um, I guess for you, because going from working in restaurants to being focused on health and it sort of seems like you've got a bit of a lifestyle business, you know, like you're working predominantly during the day, I'm guessing. Yep. Um, it's not what <laughs> the restaurant game is. It's not it's 15, totally, 16 hours a day anymore. No, yeah. it's totally different. And I'm definitely not on my feet 16 hours a day anymore. Yeah. Either. Maybe tell us about the, the change for your mindset, particularly around health. Um, look, I had a bit of a lifestyle change a couple of years ago. I uh, realized that I was massively overweight and I've been obese all my life. Um, and I'm well, I'm turning 30 next month, so we'll say for intensive purposes, for 27 years I was obese, overweight. I was never really active. As much as I played sports here and there, it was sporadic. I'd never – I'd done weight loss in the past and I only really did it um, because I knew that there was – I felt unhealthy at the time. And again, I'd do it for a period of time, lose weight, see the response and the reward and, and then go back to my normal ways. Um, two years ago – I saw a number between my toes on the scales that I didn't like. Mm -hmm. The biggest, the heaviest I've ever been was I was 130 kilos. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, something needs to change here. Because <laughs> yeah. it's affecting my work and I feel unhealthy and I can't function very well. It's taking, I feel sluggish all the time. I feel like shit. I eat like shit. I eat late. I don't sleep. All these factors were affecting these things. Yeah. Um, how much water was affecting all these things as well. And so I've, last two years or two and a half years, I've sort of educated myself and ultimately, again, surrounded myself around a really good group of people who have facilitated the growth and the understanding of what actually happens with a human body. I've always been intrigued of, about um, human behavior and how people perceive things and how, how they function. You need to find out the best way that you can work so you can perform at your best, right? Mm -hmm. I, it's taken me two years and I'm still sort of finding out, but I have now enough of a, a, a precedent and understanding to know that eating late after doing a 16 hour day on walking home from press club at one in the morning when I have to get up at seven to be back in the kitchen at eight and picking up some macros on the way home isn't going to help my situation so I just baby stepped it the biggest thing with weight loss is from what I've understood is it scares people because you're going to give yourself an outlandish number or give yourself a ridiculously big goal that's unachievable because you're just looking at the end goal thinking, fuck, how am I going to climb this mountain that is so big that I can't even see the peak yet? Yeah. So I just built like three-month goals, 12-week goals. So I thought 12 months was manageable. Uh, sorry, 12 weeks was manageable. Yeah. And it was because 12 weeks flies. The whole year flies. 2016 went in a heartbeat. You don't even realize it. So 12 weeks is nothing. But you build yourself three-month three blocks. Okay, I'm going to reach this. And I'm going to do this. And to achieve um, 15 kilos or 12 kilos of weight loss in that three months, I need to do this. And that means four times a week of being in a gym or being active. And it means that I need to eat X amount of times a day. And I need to eat the right things. And I need to stop snacking. I need to stop tasting. The biggest thing for chefs is that we're tasting things left, right, and center. You yeah. sit there. If you're on the pass and you're the head chef for, the, for that day or whatever, if you're a head chef in full time or whatever, I was development chef for Shane, which means I was doing a lot of work um, interstate or with all of these external catering companies and working with companies like Peter Rowland. And I was teaching all these staff who I didn't even know their names, to be honest. I was giving them a menu brief and saying, okay, you prep the prep, you prep this like this, you do that like that. And then the flavor has got to be this. And thank Christ, Shane is of the mindset of, I don't care how you get to the end product, just get there. Like, I don't care if you win by a point or a hundred points, just win. That's his, that's his brain. That's how he's, how he's wired. <laughs> Bless him. Because when you work with all these guys, you don't know their names. 
and you you know doing Formula One Grand Prix, and you got to do a different menu for a thousand people every day for four days, mm. working around the clock. Two team, a production team and a on-site team, twelve people each team. As I said, I, don't, I didn't know who was working off-site at the production kitchen. All I knew was I was going to get a spreadsheet of the amount of I was going to get seven hundred kilos of lamb on that day, and I needed to allocate it to five different rooms that held about a thousand people. Mm. And then I had to manage my staff in that. And again, I didn't know these, their names either. It's smash bang, go in, sort it out. Yeah, you know, you're not you're not pre-recruiting teams. You're getting agency chefs on the day. And that's how all these companies work. And that's fair enough. That's however they work is work. And I just make it work. Shane was like, you just do it. Yeah. I don't care how you do it. Again, I don't care if you, how much you win by a point or a hundred points, just win. I just want the W. <laughs> so that's all he wants. <laughs> George is a bit of a different mindset. He's, you know, he wants to know every detail. They're both um, control freaks. <laughs> so it's hard. Yeah. But the, ultimately, you just need to be a step ahead of him. And that's what I learned. Be a step ahead of of them by all means just be a step ahead of them now if that meant being awake for longer then so be it but again if you're going to be awake for longer then you need to be performing your optimum and your maximum you need to eat right and that's the massive thing that i've learned the last two years whatever you put in your mouth is affecting your mood and your function capabilities for the next day or the next week or whatever yeah if you live, if you, there's all these documentaries that were on TV. Who was that guy that ate Maccas every day for 30 days? Um, yeah, super size me. That's it. Yeah. And he was sluggish and he had no sex drive and he w- couldn't move and he was breathing heavily and all sorts of stuff, all these symptoms. And then he went cold turkey off Maccas after that and he was back to normal health again. Yeah. All these types of things affect it. Now, okay, you may not eat Maccas three times a day for 30 days, but you'd be surprised on what's in these healthy perceived foods that you're reading in the macro healthy aisle of the supermarket that is really good or good not good for you. A lot of it is just low fat, isn't it? Low fat. And, so, the, you know, there's alarm bells that should ring when you see the words low fat in bold <laughs> on a packaging material because, you know, it's bullshit. Yeah, it's <laughs> if it's low fat, then it's full of something else. Yeah, and if it's low in sugar, then it's full of something else. It's just it's just thermodynamics. They need to make up the calories. So yeah. how do you make up the calories? Whacking some sugar. Exactly. How, how, do, you, how do you extend shelf life? Yeah. Whacking sugar. How did you – what was the biggest change for you? Uh, physically like what did you change the most was it something in your diet I, st- was I was eating okay for the first time in 27 years I ate breakfast really I never ate breakfast ever I used to get up as late as possible to where I needed to be so if I started work at 9 and I knew it took me half an hour to get to work I'd be getting up at 8.26 okay that's how I was <laughs> from high school years the works like that's how I was so it was, this is was a massive lifestyle change I, I stopped eating at my mum's house Wow. Which was caused to ruffle a few feathers. <laughs> then I had the same conversation with my godmother and a whole heap of other uh, wog ladies who, who were feeding me very well for a very long time. Because <laughs> <laughs> they give you this big plate, you know, an A4 size plate of food full of carbs or whatever, sugar. And they're like, it's beautiful. I made it with my own two hands. Eat it. Yeah. And what do they know? They're doing what they've been doing, or what they've been wired to do for generations to feed and pass on their love through their cooking, through what they've made with their own two hands to their loved ones. Mm. Whether they knew you or not. I had all these Aussie kids coming to my house for who I used to play cricket with who'd come, come and my mum would feed them just like they were one of her other kids. Yeah. Because that's how she was. The, the, the soul and her, the beauty of the generosity of the human spirit was her. So to have that discussion of, hey, I'm not going to eat this A4 plate of food anymore, A4 size sheet of food anymore, I'm going to separate this over six meals of the day <laughs> is what, you know, sort of freaked them out. Um, 
water content changed, I'd used to barely drink water. Okay. Not that I was big on soft drinks or anything, but I was, you know, I was smashing a bit of cordial. Lime cooler wasn't my thing. <laughs> um, so, and again, I wasn't much of a drinker, so it's not like I had to cut that, that much of it out. The biggest thing was I, I stopped eating on the way home from work. Okay. Um, what were you eating on the way home from work? Shit. All sorts of shit. Yeah. And even eating in general on the way home from work within an hour of going to sleep isn't probably a good idea. Or what I found out wasn't the best for me. Yeah. Um, just because your body needs time to process all this stuff. Um, and processing it whilst you're asleep isn't the best way either. You need, like, even now, I have cheap meals now, but I prefer to have a big lunch or to have a cheap meal at lunchtime than what I have at dinner time. Um, so it works in that regard. So I've got the rest of the day to burn it. And if I feel really guilty about what I ate, I can probably sneak in a gym session somewhere. <laughs> um, I started working out first thing in the morning because I was finding when I was training first thing in the morning, I'd feel really good the rest of the day. I was just effective and more efficient and more productive the rest of the day. And... If I was going to eat something that I shouldn't have eaten later in the afternoon, I'd just remember that I was up at 5.30 to be in the gym at 6. And maybe I shouldn't eat that. Mm. So that's where, like all these little habits. Again, I baby stepped it. I didn't give myself all these massive things to do. It was just wake up, lemon water, work out, have a shake for breakfast, or have breakfast, whatever. And then go to work. I was cycling a lot of time, but you know, I have to cycle everywhere. But yeah. it, was, it was nice to do some incidental exercise whether you're chasing a tram down the street or <laughs> you're running up the, I was running up the stairs at, at um, the escalators at parliament. My thing was I had to run it non, non, both sets of escalators at parliament nonstop. Yeah. I couldn't stop. I'll buy old ladies if I have to do not stop. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, and just, I was eating larger meals earlier in the day than what I was later in the day. And if I was eating past six o'clock, it was mostly green veg orientated and some protein. But well, I wasn't doing a lot of carbs. Okay. So predominantly the the change in the food was yeah. focusing away from Absolutely. Carbs. I wasn't even I wasn't eating staff meal anymore at restaurants that I was working at. Oh. And you the that knowledge is- you have of restaurants, yeah. normally staff meal is very highly carb driven. <laughs> highly You're really, gonna save money, right? Yeah, exactly. Like staff meal for chefs is going to the fridge and ransack it and find whatever ingredients you can get your hands on because you're in the shit and you forgot that you have to do staff meal and you got a pile of other prep to do and you're like, fuck, I gotta cook for all these front of house clowns now. Shit, I'm in the I'm in I'm Behind the eight ball. <laughs> so whatever we can find. All right, pasta, cream, bacon. Man, we're going to make carbonara. Hey, guys, I'm making carbonara. Everyone's like, ooh, carbonara. <laughs> and fair enough, because the carbonara is delicious. Um, and then it, people were realizing I was bringing meals into work. Like a chef bringing meals into work and, you know, deep-throating a chicken wrap in the middle of lunch service, <laughs> you know, because I've got PTs telling me, okay, you got to eat between 12 and 1 for this program and you're going to have to eat at three o'clock and then you have to eat at seven. Okay. I'm like, okay, that's fine. These are nice for the nine to five person, but I'm a chef and <laughs> this is where your system is flawed because when everyone else is eating at 12 to three o'clock, I'm fucking getting my ass handed to me during lunch service trying to manage 15 people and a dining room full of a hundred people. So bullshit to your friend. I'm not eating at fucking one o'clock. It's not happening. <laughs> so I had to find ways around. I had to think laterally and go, okay, right. I'll eat. Hummus, chicken, and whatever salad in this wrap and eat it as fast as possible, which probably wasn't healthy within itself, but it was the things that I needed. It was a rye wrap, it was low carb, whatever, and it was all the protein amounts that I needed. Um, I was still getting water down, and as long as I was eating the right things, I was good. I, I ultimately, well, again, I stopped tasting at restaurants. I stopped tasting my own food 
my coworkers were getting annoyed because I'd make something and before you hand it to the pass, like you would see on all these cooking shows, before you hand it to the pass, you taste it yourself. You taste it for salt, you check it for seasoning, if it needs more spice or whatever. In this case, I was at Maha, so I needed to check spices. Instead of the head chef doing it all the time, like the head chef would check it, but there was more often than not, when you're on the line in the heat of it, in the thick, you know, in the shit Saturday night, doing double turn, triple turn restaurants, head chef isn't always going to check. So they need to have trust on their sous chefs, chef to parties, whatever, to be able to taste things and to trust that everything was seasoned right. Okay. Now, if an apprentice is handing you something, then yeah, absolutely, you've got to taste it. But I was telling my... I'm a development chef helping him out in the restaurant, handballing it to the sous chef. Hey, man, taste this because I can't eat that. <laughs> in the middle of service. You know what I mean? Like, that's fucking unheard of. Yeah. Um, and it annoyed a lot of people, but they got used to it. And fucking, I made them get used to it. <laughs> but they're throwing the scenario where I was going to do work at Peter Rowland Catering and I was working with staff that I'd never met before who I didn't even know their names. And I'm trusting them to taste something so Shane wouldn't kick my ass that it didn't taste right going out for a thousand people. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like that's where I had to be, you know, more measured in what I was tasting. Then there was a discussion that I was having with my PTs on how much are you tasting? Like how much is a spoon? How much do you have to taste all that chocolate cake? Can you just not taste a portion? I'm like, okay, I understand what you're saying. A yeah. fork is better than, or a spoonful or a forkful is better than a, you know, a slice <laughs> <laughs> or a 200 gram portion. Yeah. Um, did did this start to affect uh, your ability to work in restaurants? No. If again, I think as much as I wasn't tasting, my employers weren't saying shit about my functionality in working environment. I was still killing it. I was still up before them and smashing out emails. I was still being organised with all the events that I had to do. I was still all over my calendar and double checking. Hey, I need to be there and be there. And I was, more, as I said, I was working more effectively and efficiently, and I was functioning better. So my uh, Shane could have busted my chops saying, hey, you need to taste your food again. But I would have said, hey, motherfucker, don't stop breaking my balls because I'm still doing the job. I'm just not tasting as much. And you're still sorted. Again, Shane, and I'll throw it back at him. I'm winning. I'm getting you the W. You don't care if it's by a point or 100, right? You remember me saying that? And I'll throw it back at him and he'll be like, okay, fuck you, okay. Because <laughs> he knew that he trusted me to get a job done. And I was his right hand for two years. I was doing, he trusted me with the jobs that, he wouldn't trust a lot of people to do. I was set up all these prep for his cookbooks for him. You, you don't handball that to anybody. It's someone who knows what they're doing. Um, setting up meals for a thousand people at the latest fashion event that's going on, the Spring Racing Carnival for Formula One Grand Prix, for all the. Um, Shane has an ambassadorship with Western Bulldogs and Mercedes Benz. And all these events were all the events that I was setting up for. Yeah. Again, he. He had a relationship or a partnership with Peter Rollin Catering to do all these events because he realized that he can't do an event for a thousand people for Mercedes Benz out of a car park for the latest Series 7 launch with his team at Maha. So his connection at Peter Rollin Catering would say, okay, Peter Rollin Catering is going to go look after that, the Rollin by Shane Delia arm. But I still need to send Petros to go run it. Yeah. So that's where it worked need out someone, for him. Need someone there. Yeah. Exactly. Um, his head chef ran the restaurant. And his restaurant managers ran the restaurant and all those people looked after that. I just looked after all the external stuff. And again, I had enough of a, he had enough work for me where I just had did that constantly. And it wasn't maybe any more than three or four weeks where I wasn't in, if I, if he had no work for me, I'd just jump back in the restaurant. Olivia had a pressure off the head chef and the rest of the team. Gave someone the day off or the night off. Someone, surely someone's accumulated some extra shifts and I could just peel off for them. Yeah. And just makes everyone's life a little bit easier. And there wasn't maybe any more than three or four weeks where I wasn't out of the kitchen again. I'd be written off the roster 
Petros not here, interstate, whatever, overseas. And I was on the run. Yeah. Now that you... Actually, I want to touch back on one thing, which will go into this question I want to ask. If you... And I wrote this down in our notes. Over this journey so far, is there anything um, that particularly you've learnt from your parents? Or maybe it's your older brother who you mentioned being quite a father figure. Yep. That you think that you've carried with you now, even into your own business. Maybe it's a lesson that you learned directly, they told you, or indirectly you just saw them doing it. Yep. Is, um, there, some, is there something in particular? Yes. There's a lot of things. And there's a lot of things that you cop a bollocking about or a spray about as a kid that you don't realize till years later. And obviously that's you know, a parent to their spawn saying, I'm trying to look out for you here. <laughs> um, but you're like, nah, nah, I want to make the mistake. My... Look, from my mum, it's the generosity of the human spirit. My mum is the reason why I started cooking. Brass tacks. That's how, that's how it is. My dad didn't inspire me to pick up a pan because he's never cooked a day in his life. And the things that I have seen him cook aren't that exciting, to be honest. <laughs> Burning meat on a barbecue isn't that enthralling. Until I started cooking, my family didn't know that you're not supposed to eat well done, well done meat. <laughs> that there's actually flavor when you cook things to medium yeah. or medium rare. Yeah. And they found out what Wagyu meat was pretty quickly as well. And they're like, oh, this is nice. <laughs> now, my mum, for whatever reason now, and not just my mum, my godmother and all my aunties who I've known for all my life, they get intimidated when I go and cook in their kitchens or go over at least. They start freaking out. I've got ex-girlfriends who their mums used to freak out that I'd walk in. And I'm sure it happens to other chefs too. Now, my response to them is, take it easy. Calm down and just do what you've always been doing, number one. The big, what I reiterate to all these mothers and it's usually mothers, is I grew up on my mum's food or any old wog lady's food and that's what ultimately has inspired me to be cooking. I'll take my mum's tiropita cheese pie any day of the week over most things that a Michelin star chef will make. Yeah. Any day of the week. I'll probably be fighting that Michelin star chef after he tastes it for it. You know what I mean? So it's... I got all these housewives. I even got a message the other day from someone saying, hey, where's, where's a good place to go do a um, a crash course for cooking for housewives? I'm like, what do you cook now? And they tell me, like, those five things you do really well, stick to those five things. And from those five things, just make like branch out. You can braise, you can, you can do a beautiful braised lamb. Nice. So grab another braising cut, you know, like a beef and just do the same thing. But you're going to do it with a different meat and it's going to change the flavor. And they're like, Oh yeah, I did that, and it's exactly what you just said. I said, "Cool, but was it was it different? Did your family complain about eating the same shit? No, because if you grill a piece of chicken, you can get some veal and do the exact same thing, and can still do veal parmesan instead of chicken parmesan. If your strength is chicken parmesan, and they're like, ah, oh, yeah, okay, cool, because you've shown the skill of tenderizing a piece of meat and breading it and pan frying it and knowing whether it's cooked or not and cooking it to uh, the optimum of how you know where it retains moisture and you're not overcooking it where it's dry." Yeah. So that's where my mum's cooking has influenced me. It's her generosity of the human spirit, her vivid memories of every Easter that she'd be slaving for the week on end. And Easter's my favorite part of the year. Christmas happens and it's nice. Yeah. But Easter's my favorite part of the year by far. It's I was an altar boy as well when I was a kid. So I was at church every night of the Megali of the Mother, which is the week before Easter or the Sunday celebration. Then you got... Mum cooking every day, setting up the house. All the cousins are going to come over. Rello's, someone's coming. And she's 
pushing on. <laughs> you know, she's doing stuff at the local church. All the, you know, the local community saying is you make egg, when you do, when you dye your red eggs, you do some red eggs for the church as well. Okay. Um, and then, so she's setting up hers. She's making tsureki, which is the, the traditional Easter bread. She, once my brother's, once she found out that you can make bread in my brother's pizza oven, she started production lining it. <laughs> so she got good. Man, she's a beast now. She's got like, you know, she got it like, my brother bought her a dough machine. You know, at the pizza shop, you got a dough machine. Yeah. She makes like tsureki bread in that. Wow. <laughs> she's like, and she knows the speeds. It's an old rickety machine, but she's got it down pat now. Like she's got it. What's, a, what's the worst thing you've had to, um, not fast for, uh, give up for Easter? Hummus? <laughs> I would never give up for that is a ridiculous question Jordan sort your life out <laughs> no nah, like I haven't done Lent in years like maybe you know, I was forced to do Lent till about 11 years old when you're in that control of living in some in your parents under your parents um, yeah look I went vegan for a few times like I hated giving up Nutella to be honest I'm a, nat- I'm a massive Nutella nut yeah sorry. so so then my mum my tried to make <laughs> my godfather and I were subject to her um, Nutella vegan Nutella which was not a lex blended in a whipped in a KitchenAid or a Mixmaster with loads of sugar and cocoa powder in it. And she'd be like, yeah, Nutella. <laughs> and we're like, no, this is shit. <laughs> this is, this is woeful. And then we'd crave the day where Easter happened and the 40 days it was over of Lent. And you were like mad. Jar Nutella. Tzureki. Let's go. <laughs> Attack. So from your dad? My dad, look, my dad's taught me a whole heap of life lessons. And again, a lot of his lessons were very, I realized as I got older, um, some of them are business orientated, mostly they're life orientated. I've always had a firm belief that um, hospitality industry gives you a lot of life lessons anyway. Um, so my dad, is the biggest one has been to be trustworthy and to be able to be a judge of someone's character pretty quickly and to, and to know from the second you meet him or within a couple of minutes of meeting him and talking to him what kind of character they are and whether you should trust them with anything or not. Um, whether that be money or taking on a new client in this case now, as a, being a businessman, or to to find out what nature they are and to, to give them, not a handout, but like to show a bit of faith in them and say, okay, I'm going to do this for you now, but remember it. And not to sound like fucking Vita Corleone, but to give you that, that wog mentality of, I'll do you a favor, you do me a favor later when the time comes. Yeah. And I don't need anything from you, but I'm willing to help you out. Um, again, Trust is the biggest thing that you learn with my old man. My old man has this massive saying when I was a kid and I still vividly remember to this day. Show me your friend and I'll tell you who you are. So it's... God. I've, my, my best mate and I have been best mates for 15 years. Um, look, I've still kept in touch with people who I used to go to high school with and people used to play cricket with or Greek school with and primary school with. But my best mate Adam and I have been best mates for 15 years because of the person that he is and well, who I am. So it's just like, you know, we've traveled together. We've both gone through breakups and stuff or whatever. We needed a place to stay. Whatever. Whatever this guy's needed, he got it. Like, and vice versa. Okay. Um, he's my driver at the moment because I couldn't afford a driver. Or I, I didn't get my, I haven't, I, for the first few months, I didn't have my refrigerator van for my business. So he was going to borrow a refrigerator van where I'd organized and he'd pick it up on his way over to me and we'd do our deliveries and he'd drop it off. Damn. You know what I mean? So it's like we've always – that's the character of the guy. Yeah. And that's where, I, again, I've tried to um, build myself around those like-minded people. I don't expect everyone to be my fucking driver for free for me. But, you know, <laughs> repay the favor where it's paid forward in, in the regard where you see someone's a little bit worse off, help them out. 
irrelevant if they need if they need your help or not. If they aren't at that stage of their lives where they can say, "Hey, help me," then you know, help them out anyway. Based on that, do you do you have any core principles that you carry now through life? Things that help you make decisions. Um, just something that sort of guides you along the way. Now, and now, particularly that you're your your own business, um, you've got your own business. Yeah. Look, faith and hope in humanity is a massive one. You know, that's one. one. <laughs> yeah, it's a very tough one to be honest. You know, I've I've been fleeced with money a few times in this country and out of this country. It's the reason why I left Turkey. <laughs> um, not because of you know a Greek guy in Turkey is you know still causing civil unrest, like people would have thought <laughs> or read into it at the time. But it was just you know. Money rules most things. And I've found that every time I've been cheated of money or lost money, I got it back somehow, some way, not too long later. In that regard of I lost money in Turkey, after that private chef gig I did less than eight weeks later, I recovered that money through the tip that I got from the private equity bank or who I looked after for five days. And the guy offered me a job. And to be honest, he looked after me pretty handsomely. It would have been less money that he paid me more or tipped me more than what I would have what I was owed in Turkey. So I didn't ask him for a tip. I didn't expect a tip. I didn't know what was gonna happen. The GM said to me, heads up, this guy tips pretty well. So, you know. And I said, I don't care for a tip. I said it to the GM. I don't think I don't care. Take it. Just put it in the kitty. I don't know. Fuck, what are you supposed to do? If, as far as I can, you know, or the Australian mindset towards tipping in the hospitality industry is it all goes together, everyone splits it. Yeah. It wasn't, you know, here, here's yours. And then I'm seeing <laughs> the private equity banker. He's visiting all the staff. Like there was a maintenance guy. There was, you know, a housekeeper. And he's handing out envelopes to them all. And he gets to me and he hands me the fattest one. And I'm like, Whoa. is this what the GM was on about? Like, Jesus. So trust? Trust, absolutely. Faith in humanity. Faith in humanity. And fucking work. work hard. Yeah. Really, like you don't get anything. Whether you watch an international sportsman or anyone, or whether it's Mandela's in jail for 27 years, or Mother Teresa, or whoever, they've all come down, the, the bottom line is, work hard and believe in it. Work at it. Mm. Nothing comes to anyone who's sitting on their ass on the couch. <laughs> as, not, as much as you might read that off an app or, uh, you know, something. Yeah. But it comes down to hard work, bottom line. Based on your experiences with, it seems like you've had a lot of exposure to people who are at the top of industry. Yep. Um, you yourself being there with them, helping them over the over the yep. years. Have you identified any commonalities across people like Shane and George, and and those that you you've seen and worked with over the years in hospitality with other people, or in regards to just them? that you've seen reflected through them? Like you know, what is it that makes them unique, or what have you been able to identify across them? Presence more than anything. Presence. When, what, what do you mean by that? So when George walks into a room, pre or post MasterChef, he still makes people. He, he will look to make someone excited or happy. Shane's very similar minded in that regard. They don't. I don't think they. I don't know if they realize that they do it. But now, even after now that they've been on TV or primetime or whatever, they still have that mentality of walking into a room and saying, "Hey, how are you going?" And they'll always introduce themselves. So that's a, a lot to a lot. A lot in regards to character. Characters, you know, are the biggest thing for them because they are characters. They'll both tell you that they're not the most gifted of chefs or businessmen, although they're both pretty good in their own right. Um, 
But character is the biggest thing for both of them. What what did you notice over the years about celebrity chefs? I mean, what do, what is your opinion on wankers? All of them? No, I'm, <laughs> no, I'm joking. Because <laughs> like you, like me, you probably read that Matt Preston uh, article. A couple oh of ago. fuck, that was so good! <laughs> Jesus Christ, I thought he was talking about. No, I'm not going to go there. <laughs> I'm not going to go about who he was talking about. But yeah, that article that you're referring to. I think I shared it. I'm pretty sure I was laughing my ass off about it. But um, what have I noticed about celebrity chefs? Look, I think like anyone who falls into a bit of fame and fortune, it sort of changes them a little bit. Um, how so? How much it changes them is obviously comes down to how much character they have and what style of person that they are. Okay. Now, without going into too many specifics, I've seen a lot of changes in people throughout the years. I've I've always had a knack of finding or introducing myself to people or networking with people before they got big. And whether I helped them get big or not, I've always looked at their character and what style of person that they are. Mm. And even if they do something nice post becoming famous, um, why are they doing something nice? What are their motives behind it? Are they doing it because there's a camera around? Is their, influ- is their mood influenced by which camera's on if they're on air rolling? or if there's a photographer around, or if there's a publicist around, or if they're just doing it because that's the person that they are. Mm. Um, this part of the conversation can get pretty hectic right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, but again, it comes down to character. And it's, again, I'll call back on what I've learned from my old man on judging who the best characters are. I look at, I read a lot of biographical texts. I listen to a few podcasts because I'm into biographical stuff. I don't read Same, I fucking Harry Potter. It's like or, having an indirect mentor. Yeah, yeah, you know? exactly. Like I was, um, anytime I take a liking to a, an international sportsman or someone like that, or I admire them for something of that nature, I'll look into them and find out what they're about. Because it's all good to be able to knock out someone in 16 seconds, but why is Conor McGregor great? Yeah. What nature, what character is he? He got his ass whooped by uh, Nick Diaz the first time they fought with each other. Fair enough. Um, he was fighting a guy who was a lot bigger than him and he probably didn't... He even said he was inefficient, but he didn't realize that everyone he'd fought prior in the, in the 145 weight range, that when he goes up to a bigger weight range, that guys can ha- take a bit more of a hit. Mm. And obviously Nick Diaz, or the Diaz brothers in general, yeah. can cop an absolute fucking flogging and still be okay. Yeah. They got a bloody face. Like, man, Nick Diaz's leg in that second fight looked fucking atrocious. Wasn't Nick Diaz? Isn't Nick... Nick Nate Diaz, sorry. Nate Diaz. Yeah, Nick Diaz. Diaz brothers. Fucking brothers, man. Yeah, they're both fucking... <laughs> and they can't speak properly, man. How many headshots they're taking yeah, and these I'll, bastards are still standing yeah, up straight. Well, well, well. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, you look at Conor McGregor... Why I love Conor McGregor is that mentality of he was humble in defeat when he got his ass handed to him. He tapped out. He hadn't submitted in years. Um, he hadn't lost in years, let alone submitted. And submission is the biggest thing. Like, it's one thing to get knocked out. It's the most defeating thing. But submission is the most defeating thing you know, it's it's huge to, to tap out to someone. You, it's hard for me in a gym right now to to say no to a trainer. I have to beat what the trainer. I have to meet what a trainer is saying to me because, at a principle, like I, I can't say no to him. I'm the type of mentality where if you say no, if you can't, if you say to me you can't do that, Petros, you will not achieve that. It's not going to happen. I'll be like, thank you. You just you just lit a fire. You just started a fucking bonfire right now. And you know what? You got the best seat in the house because you're going to watch me do it. <laughs> and that's like, you know, I th- again, that comes that my old man used to do that to me when I was a kid. And my brother picked up on it, Jim, who was my father, and he'd be like, 
So that's how you work. You, I play better off my back foot. I play better on behind the eight ball when I'm chasing something. When, I'm, when I've written usually a quite ambitious, lofty goal. Now, I never said I was going to lose 45 kilos in nine months like I did. But I was smarter and more mature in my, in my approach in the saying three months at a time. And I made it. And I, and I, I reassessed after 12 weeks. And whether I gave myself a week off after that 12 weeks or changed my training, or which is what I was normally doing, I just got invested in the whole concept of um, looking after yourself. And again, I was biographical text. I was following a guy named C.T. Fletcher. He's one of my favorite people. You don't know who C.T. Fletcher is? <laughs> uh, you need to look him up on YouTube. He's got some awesome stuff on YouTube. Big guy, big black guy, bald guy from Compton in, in LA. Um, he was a massive power, power lifter in the 80s, I think. And man, the guy died three times in the operating table. He was he had he was one of the biggest powerlifters in the world. Held all these records this for is bench the guy press had and the heart attacks. Right? Exactly, yeah. yeah. He was eating maccas. Mac, that, I remember he was eating this, too. and every day, every day he'd, he'd train like a fucking lunatic, and then go to macca straight afterwards. Uh-huh. And that was his thing. Um, wouldn't take no for an answer. He wouldn't. His his motivational stuff's unreal. Like I still, I got motiv- I got his stuff like above my alarm clock when I when I wake up in the morning. Beach or bitch. Um, sorry, beast or bitch, which, what's your choice? <laughs> so it's with, um, cause I know for those who don't know, you love martial arts, but particularly, uh, you love pro wrestling, any sport. Yeah. Pro wrestling, most sports I won't, I'm usually watching following, but pro wrestling is a big thing. Big where, where did that come from? And like, how has that influenced you over your career? Do you think? Um, it's the hard work content in that. Yeah. So to be a pro re- professional wrestler, you can turn turn your nose up to professional wrestling. You can look it up and say oh, it's all choreographed and it, the, the the fights are predetermined and all that stuff. Yeah, it's fake. But at least it's real about being fake. There's plenty of things in this world right now that are not real about being fake. Yeah. And, you That's know, with, whether it being a fucking US presidential election <laughs> or the motives behind the genders of all these lobbyists and stuff happening overseas, at least... Pro wrestling is real about being fake. Yeah. Now, okay, I just went to Wrestle Kingdom 11 at Tokyo Dome in, in Japan. New Japan Pro Wrestling is the second largest wrestling promotion in the world outside of World Wrestling Entertainment in America. WWE, folks. WWE, Vince McMahon, Hulk Hogan, all that stuff. Um, there was 50,000 people at Tokyo Dome. Unreal environment. Now, I've been, I've, I went to WrestleMania 25 in 2009, Houston, Texas. Um, there was 70,000 people at that one. Fucking unreal vibe. Like any other sporting event, whether you go to a Super Bowl or an AFL Grand Final or the final of Wimbledon, it's just an unreal buzz to be there. Yeah. Irrelevant if you know who the characters are or know, you follow the teams or whatever. I, I loved last year's Grand Final of Doggies versus Sydney Swans. I'm a Richmond supporter. What the fuck have I got to be happy about as far as AFL is concerned? <laughs> we haven't seen success in 30 years. But it was great to see the Doggies get up. And it was the, the, the Cinderella story of seeing their progressed growth to look at them as an organization or a sporting organization like you would the New York Yankees, for example, and say their progressed growth from when before Luke Beveridge came in to when after Luke Beveridge came in and the spirit of his character to hand his medal to his captain who hadn't played in most of the season. Yeah. But to give it to Bobby Murphy. So bless him. Good on him. But what I'm going back pro wrestling, it was an unreal event to be there and to sit amongst 50,000 people and to be in an, an event like that. Throw in, okay, it's predetermined. But was it predetermined that Kenny Omega was going to jump from the top rope outside the barrier 
and lands on Okada, backflipping in the air and putting his body on the line. There is no safe way to do that. Yeah. There's no safe way to land. There's no safe way to stop it from happening. There's no ambulance coming out. There's no stretcher coming out. That was a 47-minute match, and it's already been labeled as the best match of the year. One of the 47 minutes. 47 minutes they went for. Normally, n- normally those, those main events go for about half an hour, 40 minutes at max. But, and to be honest, after the, probably the 25th minute, I was like, okay, this is going to finish up soon. Um, it didn't. <laughs> and you were waiting for the finish because they were doing a lot of false finishes. False finishes are when you do your finishing move and then you go for the pin, one, two, three, and it doesn't happen. They kick out. And that was happening for 20 minutes solid. And it wasn't just small moves that they're doing each other for that last 20 minutes fucking big spots man they'll jump off the top decking each other throwing each other against barricades it's that canvas that they land on isn't soft my best mate's a professional wrestler here in melbourne and i've met a lot of his wrestling mates these guys are carrying injuries 24 7 let alone them not having fucking health insurance because they don't get paid that much to do it and they've got nine to five jobs to keep themselves afloat but they don't these guys are part-time athletes trying to facilitate a dream to get themselves overseas to get paid for the big time. Mm. WWE was here a few months ago in December trialing uh, the top 50 talent of, the, of Australia because there's the independent Australian wrestling circuit. It's pretty big. Mm. They fill out um, uh, the Thornbury Theatre every March. Okay. Uh, Melbourne City Wrestling does. And there's a heap of events that, where they get three, four, five thousand 5,000 people there. And it's Australia wide. There's you know there's companies in South Australia and um, Rampage Wrestling and loads of companies, EPW, all sorts of stuff. But there's a strong culture of all these guys who are part time athletes who have nine to five jobs who are trying their best not to get concussed, injured, or both, where they can go back to work on Monday from getting fucked up on Saturday night and not the normal fucked up on Saturday night, getting out hammered and booze with your mates or whatever. It's because they probably jumped off the top rope and landed wrong. <laughs> Or whatever. If you want a good representation of what maybe being a, a an amateur trying to go pro, you've seen the wrestler. Yeah, that, by far Mickey the most O'Rourke. accurate. Yeah, he was. That's one of my favorite films, to be honest, because yeah. that's an, a very accurate representation. They don't say who exactly they based it off. Like Jake the Snake Roberts is who they lo- loosely based it off, but the effect that it has on the families. Like I was listening to Kurt Angle today. Kurt Angle's an Olympic medalist. He won an Olympic gold medal in um in Atlanta in '96 for freestyle wrestling he was one of the few who's actually got a wrestling background so i think it's him and brock lesnar who are the one of the few who have who are ncaa champions wow. you know in the college leagues in america when they were, when they were young when they were young kids and then they went into wwe and made a killing or whatever um they're a lot more than just wrestlers and taking bumps and tackles and, and whatever it's more they've got to be able to hold a microphone you talked about um the influence that wrestling has had on my career okay i'm not i don't headbutt people in the fridge anymore <laughs> <laughs> but there was some altercations in courtrooms over the years yes, but yes. <laughs> and then front kick and then <laughs> um but it's you look at characters like or people like stone cold steve austin or the rock um who two massive people of my adolescence and childhood who i've always followed and these guys are prolific hard workers the rock gets up at four does his tweet goes to the gym onto a movie set at 536 he eats like a monster because he needs to f- be performing at his maximum. Yeah, he takes the piss. Yeah, he has a laugh. Yeah, he jumps on WWE occasionally and plays a bad guy or a good guy or whatever the fuck. But he does it to the best of his abilities because he's got all these things in place. Good people around him. His meals are sorted. 
whether Adonis Catering's looking after him or not. He's <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's the pinnacle. That's the pinnacle. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking oath that would be. Um, he's positioned right, right people. He's got himself in the best possible environment for him to succeed. Now he's in his forties. He's not, in theory, supposed to be doing what he's doing, but he was one of the highest paid actors in the last couple of years. His, gro- his films have grossed the most. You may not like his films. You may not go see um, Fast Furious or <laughs> Baywatch or, you know, whatever. Um, or Jumanji, because he does a few kids' films here and there. But he, does, he strategically places, aligns himself with brands that are like-minded and he can build from and boost his net income with. That's all it is. Like a Formula One driver, he needs to have... X amount of money with him in order to get to be in that Scuderia red Ferrari. Yeah. Fernando Alonso doesn't get into a Ferrari because he's a good driver. He gets into a, a Scuderia red Ferrari because he's got millions of dollars of backing behind him. Yeah. And he's got sponsors who believe in him and are happy to put their label on him whenever he does a press conference. So that's why he gets in the shit when he does, when he cops a DUI or gets, I don't know. I can't remember if anything Fernando Alonso has done anything to jeopardize his career. But, you know, all these athletes who are massively sponsored and looked after, that they can't be found uh, breaching a TAC contract because they got done in the preseason because they got a, had a couple of drinks and they wanted to drive home and, you know, threaten someone with chopsticks. Yeah. You know, all that stuff. <laughs> all these things that happen, you know. Now, they happen. These athletes have got bigger things to worry about. They've got pressure on them all the time. Mm. Public pressure or their own pressure. We all, we're all our own worst enemy at the end of it. And you've got to play in front of 30,000 people and ha- tackle and mark and handball the ball and then hopefully play in a flag and win it mm. or get a brown line medal or whatever. It's the first time for, for a very long time that you're hearing from Olympic athletes that they're just happy to get to the Olympics, which is ridiculous when you look at it because really every fucking Olympian that goes to the Olympics should be aiming for that gold medal in their sport. Yeah. Not for, hey, oh man, I can't wait to wait to get a selfie with Usain Bolt. You know what I mean? Like you want to see the best possible athletes in their chosen field from that country, yeah. whatever countries that they're in. So we're sort of pushing for that pinnacle. Yeah, exactly. And that's where following and watching Stone Cold Steve Austin and The Rock and seeing them struggle with their stuff. And, you know, Rock's gone through depression. Stone Cold Steve Austin was an um, alcohol addiction, drug addiction, all sorts of stuff. But they've all taken on that adversity and, and overcome it somehow in some way. So, and I'm wary of time because you got to run and do a, got plenty of time. a rock star. <laughs> when, it, when I talk about success or when you think about success, who is the person, could be a historical figure too, mm. who comes to mind? Look, my parents are by far at the top of that list. As much as I want to say The Rock or Conor McGregor or whoever. That my parents are by far the biggest success stories in my life. Now, how do you measure success? Is the is the exactly. the bottom line? <laughs> you can't just say uh, it's when you get a million dollars because now these days a million dollars ain't shit. Well, how do you measure it? Or well, me? Look, as long as you're happy. Um, am I happy working for other people? Yes, but it was time for me to, to step away from working with George and Shane and to do my own thing. Now, they need to be happy for me that I've got the bollocks to stand up and say that to them <laughs> and to pursue that. You know what I mean? So it's now it's they need time or they've needed time in the past to be able to handle that. 
it's nice that I can still talk to Shane one on one, and every time my phone his name comes up on my phone, or I call him, we still answer each other. Yeah. Um, which is different scenarios with different people, obviously, when it's building connections with different people. But to just be that guy where you can still be relied on and called upon. But to be some, to be reliable these days, unfortunately, isn't as strong or powerful as what it was in the past. Um, you're paying for things now where you don't know if you're going to get it in the mail or you're, gonna, you're giving someone your credit card details before you receive the product. Mm. Now, as much as you understand it from a business standpoint that that's happening, you need to trust in humanity and faith that, that's gonna, that the product's going to come in the mail, that the check's going to come in the mail or whatever it is or the subscription underwear's going to come in the mail. They've got... A, it's pretty good, man. Subscription underwear, it's the best. Like, you don't have time to sit there and buy undies every four weeks, but man, bang, it fits in your mailbox. It's the greatest. And they're comfy. <laughs> anyway, uh, <laughs> be happy is what I'm getting at. But it's... Again, surround yourself around the right people. If you find yourself in a spot and you're not around the right people and you're trying to get out of some bad habits, then all you need is one person. Whether that person is a real material person you can meet and reach out to or if they're, they, you find their content on social media and it inspires and uplifts you to, to, to make a change. Yeah. Ultimately, it comes down to you and getting off your ass and doing it. So it's not... Again, be happy. My parents came here to this country off a boat from 32 days, just like a lot of other European migrants. Now, the boat the boat dramas is a massive subject right now. <laughs> in Australia, you, what, all over the world, really. Oh, right, right. Okay. So it's... How, how, how do we say 40 years post-European settlement, uh, European uh, influx from World War II, how do we say to people from Africa or wherever, no. Middle East, yeah. Middle East, even for other other war stricken countries. Yeah. So it's 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 funny. Like you saw that ad, um, the Australia Day one. Yeah. yeah. For the first time, they've done something right. Yeah. You know, it wasn't Sam Kekovich going on about fucking lamb chops. I'm Sam Kekovich. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but it's but that doesn't change the fact that Australia Day is probably on the wrong day. Yeah. In the calendar year for Australia. Yeah. Whether it needs to be changed dates or whatever, that's the bigger issue. It's funny because Will Anderson was talking about it. Yeah. And because uh, I went and saw his stand-up show during Comedy Fest, and he was just yep. saying that you know this has only been a thing for thirty years. I don't know what the big fuss is. And for a start, it never used to be specifically on this day. It would be in and around the last, uh, in and around that date for like mm. eighty years. Yep. Um, but I agree. I think it's the wrong day, man. I mean, you can't have like five. I don't know what percentage the Aboriginal population is of Australia. Yeah. But we're talking about the first people who were here. Absolutely. We want to be inclusive. That was what a lot of the the constitutional changes or historical changes, societal yep. changes have been over the last thirty years. Let's say, if we want to make it a fairer society, it seems weird that a strong portion of our population that despise this day and we still keep it on this day mm. when we don't really give a shit. But then when, we when just you, won the fucking public you, holiday. Yeah, when you're public holiday, you want to draw the line at something as well though. Like, I don't watch horse racing, but I know the spring racing carnival is on every year. Mm. I don't believe in a midget whipping a horse for a, two kilometers is ethical, let alone right. Yeah. But, you know, where do you draw the line with political correctness these days? Yeah. Again, it's, it's just it's just a day off for, for a lot of people or it's a four-day weekend for a lot of people. Yeah. And if you, God help you, take that fucking four-day weekend from them. <laughs> remember, remember when the, the Brax government came in and they gave everyone, I think the public holidays, well, it was always Boxing Day, you get a public holiday, then you get the 27th and then he kicked off with the 28th and the 29th as well or something. He gave extra public holidays is what I'm getting at. Yeah. And then everyone was like, fuck, how good Steve Brax? What a legend. <laughs> he's a quarter Lebanese. He's one of our people. He's, he's you know, ethnic. And then when he got out of power, 
and they went back to the normal public holidays of just 26, 27, there was a fucking uproar about it again. It's like, you can't keep everyone happy. Yeah. Now, days off, days off. <laughs> what do you think, what is never changing in the chef slash restaurant game? What have you noticed over the years that just never really changed? Demand, but demand in alternate um, avenues now. Again, we discussed earlier about Neil Perry having a burger joint and having a, a rock pool. And Shannon Bennett start, is opening a, a, a burger joint as well. So people are always going to want to eat. Affordability, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But they've, there needs to be lateral thinking towards affordability. Okay. And that's where all these, these businesses are, are popping up now. Do you have any morning ritual now? Yes. And what is that? Lemon water when I wake up. <laughs> <laughs> and half a liter of water. And I normally need to go pee after that. Do you meditate or anything like that? No, I probably should though. Okay. I feel as if I should. <laughs> I've put on my list of things to do. Do you have, what's your rec- exercise routine? I train about six times a week. Okay. Sometimes it's double sessions, other times it's. Weights or predominantly cardio? Um, bit of both. It's probably 60 40 okay. in the weights department. Right. Um, I hate it. Actually, I did no cardio all of last year yeah. so, <laughs> because I was trying to put as much muscle on as possible. And, um, you know, when I did, when I started doing cardio back in December with a new trainer, I was hating life. But <laughs> if you had to do a talk, let's say like a TED talk, you know, mm. talk in front of a big group on any topic, and this is probably getting into the uh, the art of panettone. <laughs> Excuse my panettone. <laughs> Part of my panettone. <laughs> what topic would you talk on? There's a few, right? This is a very broad question for me, but I'd very absolutely I would go after question a restaurant dining experience. How come you have to sit down for two to three to four hours in the same spot? Why? It shits me. It annoys me that that's been the, the way for, for for forever. I never really thought about it. How come you like? Okay, you do it now, right? We've been sitting here for a couple of hours. Throw in. We've been fidgeting around in our chairs. We very likely need to go to the toilet because <laughs> I need to have six liters of water already. And then you got, but sit in the dining experience and you got all these food coming at you, whether it be a 18 course degustation or a five course or a three course or whatever. You're going to sit down for two to three hours. Why do you have to be in the same spot? You get up after those two or three hours, your feet are probably numb, your knees are fucked, or mine are, but there's, whether you've got joint problems or not, your hips, you're stuck in the same spot. Um, whether you've gone up for a toilet break or I remember Attica was doing a thing where Attica restaurant, Ben Shuri was taking people through to the kitchen about halfway through the meal or take them through to the garden and say, here, we're going to have a glass of champagne here and a couple of snacks here, which is nice. But going back to your seat, yeah. why can't you go to another room? Why can't you go to multiple rooms and why have multiple things? Yeah. Why can't you stand up? Like you go to a canopy event or a, a dinner and you start off with a canopy event and you're usually in the same room that where you started in. So wouldn't that that would be fucking fascinating to completely change that? Yes, yeah, which it's is such why a I crucial like crucial component. Absolutely, because the environment and the ambience of of a venue, like you so say, you speak to a restaurant manager now, and if you brought it up with Angie or not, how how a um, a dining room is constructed from the aesthetic of looking at it and how the temperature of when you're sitting down to the temperature when you're standing up walking through the room to the sound the volume. Temp- the volume a- a- amount is when you're standing, walking down the stairs into your dining room to when you're first greeted. All those little in- intricate 1% details. These are things I'd go after. Yeah. And as I said, Adonis Catering is only a base, a foundation of what I want to see myself doing for the next five to 10 years. What I'm doing after that remains to be seen. I've got ideas. 
these things need money thrown at them as well, obviously, <laughs> capital, but, and, you know, a whole lot of debt. But what I'm getting at is I'm looking forward to that part when I get to it yeah. because that's where I'm going. Um, a cafe is probably in the immediate future, in the next 12 months, um, and to do a healthy eating cafe and to do it properly because there's a lot of, again, healthy eating cafes are doing all these meals that aren't really healthy eating. Yeah. You can, it's all good. You kind of, it's nice to have grilled chicken. But when you fucking thump it in exo sauce, it's not healthy anymore. Yeah. You know? But like that's to me, healthy food can be can taste great. It's just understanding what you can and can't use. And once you understand what you can and can't use, there's a whole lot of ways to treat it. I've employed all of December I employed a pastry chef to develop all these recipes for me. Um she hated it because she's a traditional pastry chef. Yeah. She hasn't used butter sugar. and sugar the whole time she worked with me. So she's losing her mind a bit. Told her, coconut oil. <laughs> honey maple we're not using agave because I fucking hate it um, bit of olive oil a little bit of olive oil here and there but like it's it needed to make sense again and this is my back and forth with my nutritionist now because then she says to me ah oh, this chocolate mint brownie um, doesn't have the right protein powder in it or doesn't have the right amount of protein in it because everything else in the market you need 20 grams of protein per 100 grams of chocolate bar or protein bar Right. so I need to hit that yeah. But I need it to be a seven-day shelf life item and I can't have loads of sugar in it to keep it for longer than seven days and I need it to taste good. And that's where my battle is. Yeah. And I, then I need it to look good and then I need it to look in, fit into packaging that looks good. And that's where my what I'm constantly losing sleep about <laughs> these days. But like, it's all that stuff. If uh, Do you have any favorite books or books that you would gift to someone? Um, the last cookbook I bought was, was Mark Best's cookbook. Okay. Big fan of Mark Best. I'm spewing his closed mark because that was one of my other top three dining experiences in the world in Sydney. Um, he's just the way he looks at food. He's real minimalist. Everyone's doing the minimalist um, approach towards dining and cooking or yeah. and cooking actually um, using two or three ingredients and, and using them as hero ingredients. That's great. Good on him. But Mark Best does it in a certain way where it's a little bit more left to center, which probably appeals to me and a, and a lot of his is the people that he appeals to. It, like he just looks at things differently. Yeah. Um, Any books outside of cooking? Uh, look, I've got the Michael Clark book recently. Okay. I was reading that. <laughs> um, it was, it's okay so far. There was, I've read a few business books lately. If you, what what do you think has been the, the most, or your best purchase, say under $200 over the last I bought two years? I bought an awesome sashimi knife in Tsukiji fish market last week <laughs> it was pretty good I also bought a fedora um, for the first time <laughs> I never wear I never wear hats <laughs> and I I saw uh, you know how they say books choose you oh, I felt as if this hat chose me when I was walking through the store and I was like mate this hat looks hectic if you um, <laughs> if you could have a billboard anywhere in the world what, where would it be and what would it say um Adonis Catering would be what's getting promoted. <laughs> um, that's first thing. Um, look, I've always I have an affection with New York. Okay, like it's as much as I love Melbourne and I'm Melbourne born and raised. If there's anywhere in the world I'd see myself living, it'll probably be New York. Okay. So to have an, a billboard or something with my brand up at Times Square, Times Square it'd be yeah. pretty fucking amazing. A lot of people say. Times or Square. or near um, Madison Square Garden. Any big stadium, I'll take Yankee Stadium. Whatever, you know, <laughs> it's a bit like Col- last time I was at Yankee Stadium. Reminded me of the Coliseum anyway. So it was, it's but like the, the sporting version of it, and with loads of hot dogs in it, and Bud Lights. <laughs> but what yeah, say? <laughs> what would it say? What would it say? Um, 
Order before Saturday, 3 p.m. <laughs> Tuesday pickup. <laughs> uh, no, nah, nothing preachy or anything. Just, you know, perform at your best. Yeah. Support yeah. local. That's a good one. Do you have any favorite podcasts? And what are you listening to on uh, your playlist right now? Uh, I have very music. eclectic music choice. Man, from I was listening to Bismarcky this morning. Okay. Because that song that that you got what I need song, that's that powerful lyric <laughs> resonates to anyone who's ever been in that situation. And everyone has. Um, yeah, music is all over the shop. Rap, hip hop. Rap, hip hop mostly. Rock. But I grew up listening, my brothers were listening to a lot of um, Beatles and a lot of hardcore rock or, or rock in general, like Stray Cats and stuff when I was a kid. So that's what I was following when I was younger. Rap, hip hop has only happened in the last 10 or 15 years or when I was in high school really. Yeah. Um, what about podcasts? Podcasts. The, the Stone Cold Steve Austin podcast is still pretty good. Like I still listen to that. I've been listening to that for a while now. Nice. Um, it's obviously resting orientated, but it's um, again biographical. Yeah. And he listen. He doesn't just li- he doesn't just follow the WWE guys because he's contractually obliged. He goes out and looks after the indie guys as well, um, because the UK indie wrestling scene is massive at the moment. Yeah. Um, there's like five thousand people going to shows there. We've got big shows here in Australia, but they're not consistently three to three to seven thousand. What is um this is a harder question but maybe something we'll cap off with. Uh what is something that you believe that nearly no one agrees with you on? <sighs> or like what important truth do very few people agree with you did on? I, did I write something? Um What important truth? Say it again. What I remember reading the question. I know I th- Thought what, about what, I just didn't write anything down. What insight sort of seems obvious to you but not to others? Um, like something that you're always, you know, preaching and then people were just like, yeah. They're not like fully compelled into it. Sure, I've got a couple of pearlers. I just couldn't nail it down to one. Um, look, there's people who, as I said earlier, there's people who refuse to get their head around cooking. Even the most basic of things for their own lifestyle survival. When I started Adonis Catering, in my head, I was like, I know there's plenty of people who do meal prep. Right. And bless them. I don't want people to stop cooking. If you cook at home and you enjoy it, and you, if you enjoy cooking in general, then don't stop doing it. I'm, Adonis Catering is there to facilitate that. You don't have to sit behind a braise for fucking six hours on a stove. Yeah. Um, Adonis Catering will do it for you. But prep your own salads. Do your own veg prep if you want. Because it's, if it's easy and accessible to you. But, you know, it's as I said, if you cook at home, then bless you. But don't look at cooking and get intimidated because you saw a TV show or some guy bo- getting bollocked right. and say, I don't want to do that because I don't want that to happen to me. Don't be fucking scared. Grow a pear and cook something. So cooking isn't Or as, just it, try it. Yeah, it's not as intimidating as it sounds. No, said. it's not. Like, it doesn't have to be. You can get a packet of pasta. You don't have to fucking hand make it yourself. <laughs> if you have a nonna who can teach you how to hand make it yourself, then do it because, unfortunately, nonna's not going to be around forever. Um Keep it simple. Yeah. I know it's not something not a lot of people argue about, but it seems as if all everyone is overcomplicating things mm. these days. They're just doing, doing, everyone's so involved and in love with the process that they make too much process about it. And it's like, just fucking keep it s- simple, stupid. It's like, oh, so that was a kiss acronym, wasn't it? <laughs> keep it simple, Stop stupid. Stop fucking around and get it done. <laughs> Stop pissing and moaning about things <laughs> when you could have spent that time that you were pissing and moaning to getting it done and setting in effective manners in place of getting it happening. Yeah. Well, maybe we'll finish off with that. Keep it simple, stupid. Yeah. Petros, thank you so much. (laughs) This has been awesome. Thank you. Cheers. Appreciate the opportunity. Cheers. See you, man.
Before you head off, thank you for making it this far. It's been a real treat doing this. Like I said, make sure you head to neural.com slash podcast to learn about our prizes. Sign up to our weekly brain food called the Monday Morsels at neural.com slash sign up. That is N-E-U-R-A-L-L-E.com slash sign up. Leave us a review. It's really important to us that we can get quality reviews and build feedback as to whether to continue with this. Check us out on Facebook at Neural, N-E-U-R-A-L-L-E. Until next time, speak soon.